Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be reviewing uh, Warren's debate on total depravity. And Warren decided to make an appearance and say hi and to explain why he failed and lost the debate. <laughs> Dude, oh, what an intro. Thank you, Chris. That's great, man. With friends like Chris Fisher, you know, who needs a Calvinist? <laughs> Yeah, so I actually haven't watched the debate yet. I was going to watch the debate. I was like, I might as well just live stream it because I'm not like I'm not cleaning the house or anything while I'm listening to it. So might as well do it with everyone. A group effort. Yeah, it was it was a it was a it was a fun debate. It was very cordial. Um Dan had reached out to me a couple months ago and just said, Hey, do you want to debate total depravity? And I was like, Not really, but I I will. And uh and uh, so he recommended Donnie over at Standing for Truth, and um, I uh, I agreed to debate him. I know he's an Arminian, but he does hold to total depravity, which we weren't really going to debate the solution. We were just debating the problem, whether it was biblical or not. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll take that up. And um, yeah, it was, it was a cordial debate. Um, I had a good time with it. There were... Um, so many points that I wanted to raise as far as problem after problem after problem, but I only had 15 minutes and I didn't want to uh, overwhelm the audience uh, because, you know, if I list 30 problems with total depravity, the, the average listener may be able to retain three, four, five of those. So I tried to keep it about three, four, five problems and then just really keep harping on those. Yeah, it's not a bad strategy. It might m another strategy might be to list off a bunch of problems and say I'm going to go over these five in detail. But there are other problems, something like that, just to mm -hmm. give them some sort of mental like yeah. There's other things as well. But yeah, uh, yeah Dan Chapa, I, I like Dan Chapa, and so it's he's he's not caustic. Mm -hmm. He's he's intellectual. He thinks about his position. Uh, he has thought out intelligent responses. So it, uh, any debate with him is going to be a good debate. I'm, and even if you win or lose or anything like that, uh, I, he seems to be a, a good, good sport. He's not, he's not a bad man. No, he was, he was, he was kind going, uh, into the debate. He was kind during the debate. Um, you know, he brought up the Pelagian label once as a slap, like, you know, out of the heart, out of the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he was using a little bit of humor, but I, I, I think there was some, I think there was some genuineness there, but, but overall he was, um, he was very kind, very cordial, very professional. Um, and I had, I had a good time. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I knew, I knew debating Dan was going to be challenging in a different way. Because, you know, I, I, it's not like I'm debating Matt Slick. I'm not going to have that foil who punches first and punches often. This is going to be more of a gentlemanly, a, a gentlemanly it's be an discussion. intellectual discussion. Yes, yes. Or it's going to be very gentlemanly. It, it's not going to be this back and forth, just yelling and name calling. Oh, yeah, it's it's refreshing. And so, again, I haven't watched this yet. I, I just started it up. Let me put it on screen here. Um, here's Dan Chapa, and uh, here's you. At first, I thought you were wearing like a Star Trek 
collar shirt or something like that, like a priest shirt, like like in Star Trek, all their like business suits in the future just mean they they don't have you know lapels or something. They're like, like they're like V-necks from the future, you know. Um, yeah, no, actually, it was funny because Jonathan Pritchett messaged me and he's like, "You need to wear a suit for this," like because I, I I I take my theology serious, but not my wardrobe. And so, you know, I'll show up <laughs> to a debate wearing a T-shirt, you know, a dance or a, a, a Jonathan was like, like, take take some pride, Warren. Just like, come on, man. Like presentation is everything. Like you're, you're going to turn off so many people the way you dress. Yeah. So I, I ran over... home and I threw on a sport coat. <laughs> you're at home. He says, uh, everyone do some body weight squats while the debate is on. This is this is actually good advice. Uh, <laughs> is. Christians do not take their health as seriously as they should they're like okay so um i went to summit ministries and uh one of the big things that happened is like when i was in uh, high school college age this girl got shamed for for smoking it there and there was this big deal that blew up and they had to address the whole assembly and she's in tears and things like that it's like they're they're harassing this lady because she smokes and there's like all these fat girls doing it i'm like don't you don't you see a little bit of irony in this? A little bit of irony? Oh, no. It's it's like the, the pastor, you know, who'll preach against drinking uh, an occasional alcoholic beverage, but he's, you know, 450 pounds and, you know, he's he's got the meat sweats in the pulpit, you know. <laughs> he, he, he drinks the occasional ranch dressing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, it, it is. It's it's the, the whole plank eye syndrome. But, but uh, yeah, Jonathan gave me some encouraging words of, you know, hey, uh, show a little pride in yourself and put on a sport coat. So that's where that came from. Normally, I would have just shown up in a t-shirt or a sweatshirt. <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, and uh, uh, Dan Carey, Dan Chap, oh, not, not, not Dan and Chapa. He seems to be doing a green screen background. I was like, that's a pretty nice background. But then I saw some pixelation going on in it. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it works. His green screen just has a couple uh, defects. Yeah, it was, um, no, it was it was it was good. And I think Donnie over at Standing for Truth did a good job moderating. Um, he was very fair, very impartial. Um, you know, there yeah. was there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of fireworks anyway for him to go. You know, like simmer down now. There was none of that. So he he, but he did a good job. Yeah, I've never heard of this guy before. Is it is he like a real channel? Yeah, I think he has uh, what eighteen thousand subs, if I'm not mistaken. And he hosts he hosts a lot of debates. Um, you know, he, he, it was my first time on there, and I, I had a great experience with it. I, I will likely go back. Yeah, that works. All right, so let's get to uh, Dan Chapa's opening arguments. And I was a little confused at first when the slide comes on, but I, I kind of get what he's going for. Yeah, sorry if you hear it. For you, and you've got 15 minutes for an opening statement. Whenever you're ready, I'll start your timer. Okay, thanks very much and good evening. Um, so um, this debate tonight is over the issue of total depravity, and I wanted to start with uh, the, what I consider the point of contention. There's a lot of back and forth in these discussions, so it's kind of hard to suss out sometimes, but uh, I think the primary point of contention that I've found is best articulated in one of the videos on Soteriology 101, where it was uh, Dr. Um, Leighton Flowers and Warren were discussing and responding, and the video is called Response to Arminians, and there's a seven-minute clip you can find around the 
two hour and 18 minute mark, like I said, there's a lot of information to suss through, but this is probably the most clear discussion that I can find at the point of contention. So I asked the question, okay, so the Holy Spirit inspired scripture 2000 years ago, but what is the Holy Spirit doing today? So there's a, the Holy Spirit's inspiration of scripture 2000 years ago. I don't think fully explains the language that we find in scripture of illumination, drawing and conviction and other things. Now, uh, Warren and Dr. Flowers responded and they responded with a, they posited a hypothetical. This is not their actual view, but it was a hypothetical to clarify their view. And what they said is if the Bible were lost for a thousand years, and then let's say that the deist view of God is true and God starts the ball rolling uh, and then took off. And let's say there's a Bible and a Quran on the shelf. And assuming this deistic worldview where God doesn't exist anymore and there's no Holy Spirit moving, the Bible is still believable. That. Okay, so this seems to be, I, I think he's taking issue with this. Here's the hypothetical. And the hypothetical is not something that you affirm that in a world without God actively intervening in the world, people could still read the Bible and believe it. I think that's that's what it boils down to. I think I think so. And I, I don't recall this hypothetical or even this conversation with Leighton. So, you know, there, like he said, there's there's been a lot of content. Yeah. But, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think that someone can pick up the Bible read it, believe it. And I don't think that that's all that controversial. Um, but, but I think Dan took objection with that. Yeah. It's, it's weird to me that that's controversial because people follow Jim Jones down to South America and commit mass suicide. And then you got Haley Bop Comet people and you have David Koresh followers. Like people pick up like fictional books and believe them. There's a fictional book about uh, journeying to the center of the earth. People are like, this is just, it's a real book. There, There's a real subterranean civilization. It's like people like literally believe almost everything. So it's, it's kind of weird to think that there's some sort of like a cosmic gate that's just around the Bible that people can't actually believe the, but they're allowed to believe anything else except for they're repelled from this cosmic gate, all their belief arrays are just reflected off and they're just unable to believe the Bible. It, it seems to be a weird view to me. Yeah. And, and it, it's a weird way to start the the debate too. I mean, I, <clears throat> when, when, when I said in, you know, there's always in these, these debates, when you're going online, there's a, a moment where you log in and you see yourself and your debate opponent and the host and you're talking before it goes live. And Dan was like, can you see my slides? And I was like, we can do slides? <laughs> like, oh no, <laughs> what? Nobody told me this was gonna be uh, a professional debate. We're doing, we're doing slides, hold on, let me. And uh, so I was, really, I was really concerned, you know, like, well, what all is this presentation going to entail? And so I'm, I've, got a, I've got horrible handwriting. So I've got my little window open where I can type really quickly and make little notes. And, um, and I was doing my very best to keep up with uh, the content in the slide. But this was the first thing that came up. And it was like, I object to you thinking people can read the Bible and understand it. And I was like, I don't know how to respond to that. Like, 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 okay. like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't really, I don't know how to, uh, to defend the fact that I believe the Bible is believable. So uh, I don't even know if I even addressed this in, in the, uh, the, 
rebuttal period. I don't think I did. I think this is one of those where I was just so like in a state of guffaw, you know, like I was like, what, what I'll just, you know, stick to my talking points here. But it, yeah, it, it, if I was in this debate, I was in your position. I saw this slide come up. I'd be like, did, did I come to the right debate? <laughs> that was that was really where I was. Like I was I was like I I don't think we're going to be staying entirely on total depravity. I and and we really didn't. We we veered into a, a couple different areas, which I think you, you'll see as this unfurls. All right, so we'll let him make his argument. That that's his mm-hmm. setup, and and hopefully he follows it up with an argument rather than just saying uh, I I don't accept that. Is what. I object to, and that is to me the clearest point of contention that I can find in the um, voluminous uh, disagreements that have been had. But let's get into my 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 positive presentation. Oh, sorry for the formatting. It looks like uh, there was some issue, but uh, I apologize. Hopefully, this will still work. Wait, wait. Does he ever defend the position that people can't believe the Bible? I think he does go into um, defending a total inability and needing some extra work of God's grace. I bring up and challenge him on the position that the gospel is inadequate to bring people to the truth, that they need some extra thing to accompany it. So we do get into that. Okay. That's uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting that he just says, Hey, this is their view. I object to it. And then he moves on to another point. It's like, is, is that an argument or is that just like a... I think Dan has the heart of a um, of a, maybe a teacher. And so I think what he was trying to do was to give a overarching like, hey, I take issue with this, but let me give you the history of total depravity as I see it as a member of the Evangelical Society of Arminians. So, um, or Society of Evangelical Arminians. So, but, uh, so I think he was just trying to lay out kind of a generic framework more than it was um necessarily like a, a, a what I was expecting for a debate intro. So maybe the way he kind of phrased it was like this is the issue at stake. So this debate, whichever way this goes, it affects this issue directly and you make your you make your decision on this issue based off of the debate. maybe that's what he's going for. I guess like I'm, I'm here to convince you you can't believe the Bible. <laughs> like, you know, you need, but, but he doesn't, he doesn't hold to total inability um, per se, because at the same time, God is taking it away as being punishing for Adam's sin. He's also giving it right back with enabling prevenient grace. So it, it's one of those having your cake and eating it too sort of thing, um, which you'll see as the debate goes on. All right. Okay. So. God loves everyone and desires that they come to repentance and faith. He sent his son to die for mankind so they could be saved. Those whom God calls, he calls seriously and earnestly desires their salvation. The responsibility for rejecting Christ is on the person who chooses to reject and not due to God withholding the grace they need. Fallen people are capable of learning biblical truths and are doing relatively good acts through God's assistance by a creation, conscience, the law, and divine revelation. But due to the fall, they can't do anything fully pleasing to God in thought, word, and deed, including truly believing. In other words, each individual work unbelievers perform are tainted with sin. God must initiate conversion by supernaturally overcoming their depraved flesh to enable them to trust his gospel promises and then truly obey his commands. 
This grace is supernatural, prevenient, present day, and enabling. Examples in scripture include illumination, conviction, calling, drawing, opening the eyes, and the gift of repentance and faith. So this is... So that's real strange. Okay. It, it, is, it is standard total depravity that we can do nothing pleasing to God unless we have the spiritual enlightening. So like, so let's say someone saves a kid from drowning in a river. If that person's an atheist, then that action cannot please God. It's, it's, it's such a strange way to view the world. You're, you're seeing God through the eyes of God is a metaphysical formula. And so based on the value of the person doing the action that determines whether or not God is pleased by that action, it's, I, it's, it's a strange way to view the world. I don't, I don't think it's a natural intuitive way to view how things like even you and I, we might have enemies. If they do something good, you're like, Oh, that was a good thing. James White puts out a good tweet. You're like, that was a good tweet. Even from a bad guy. I don't know. It's, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those situations where um, you who are evil uh, or you me, you who are accustomed to doing evil, know how to give your children good gifts. The Bible's like, hey, hey you who've been doing evil, that was a good thing. And, uh, you know, Augustinians are like, no, no, it wasn't because it wasn't done in faith. And, uh, you know, there's there's some there's some uh, tension, I think that's a kind way of saying it, uh, between their favorite proof texts and the way that we see them being lived out uh, throughout the, the men and women of Scripture and even applied by Christ. Yeah, it's a very strange where it, within the Bible, you could do things to please God. God rejoices over people, sings over people. He wants them to return. He desires them to return. So he, he seems but to see, give you're, them... You're assuming, you're assuming that they have the ability to return. See, the, the text, if you squint and you turn it on its side and you turn the light out and you close your eyes, it actually is teaching total inability. They can't return. See, that's... <laughs> that's the position they, they can't return so every time i would say well look over here in isaiah 55 7 god's saying let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let them return to me so i'll forgive them yeah um, greer says uh, he created man and woman kind of good that's another weird thing that the fall apparently instituted this metaphysical barrier yeah like before the fall it didn't exist but somehow there's some sort of metaphysical trigger and formula change in the ether, whereas now all this stuff just gets implemented. Like before the fall, you could come across a Bible, read it, and then believe it. But after the fall, that's when that cosmic shield descends over the Bible where all your belief rays get reflected off. Yeah, it's very bizarre is from the statement of uh, the Society of Evangelical Armenian um, webpage. And it illustrates that the problem for mankind is total depravity and the solution is prevenient grace. For And I'll use these to define the issues tonight. Humanity was created in the image of God, good and upright, but he fell from his original state through willful disobedience, leaving humanity separated from God and under a sentence of divine condemnation. Total depravity does not mean that human beings are as bad as they could be, but that sin impacts every part of a human being, that people now have a sinful nature and a nature inclined towards sin, making every human being fundamentally corrupt at heart, 
Therefore, human beings are not able to think well or do anything good in and of themselves, including meriting God's favor, saving ourselves from judgment and condemnation of God and we, that we deserve for our sin, or even believe the gospel. If anyone is to be saved, God must take the initiative. Now the solution, because of total depravity and no, the atonement for, all, for just a second. which is defined elsewhere, God calls. So you'll note he says that because of total depravity, we can't believe the gospel. So then he posits a solution, which is this is this is the this is the power of God unto salvation. This is the solution here. It's that prevenient enabling grace that enables us to to return to the Father. It's it's not the gospel itself. And this is one of the issues that I raise in this in this uh, in this debate is that total depravity denies the very power of the gospel. And this wasn't unique uh, just to, to Dan. This this is this is the classic. Um, at least reformed version of Augustinianism, that, that the gospel is insufficient. And I, I give numerous quotes as we get into this, but that's one of the points that ha has been argued and denied. And I, I think in this debate, um, whether he wants to uh, concede this, I think, I think that he already has. Yeah, so the idea is that God has to give a special, a special enlightening to apparently a select group and not everyone in order to make them have the ability to believe the Bible and or the gospel. Well, the Arminian would say that everyone gets proveniently graced and then they become free to accept or reject. It's not effectual. So I think Dan's position is a little bit different than say like Matt Slicks or, or your typical Calvinist. So in, in that position, it's you've been punished with total depravity, this total inability. You cannot rightly understand the, the Bible. You can't respond to the gospel because of this. So because God has taken that away from you as punishment, now he gives effectual enabling grace to everyone. And, and so it's, it's like having a blue invisible aardvark over here that bats away truth. And over here is a pink flying elephant that's invisible that gives you truth. And, uh, and you're like, well, what am I, what am I doing with this? And like, where do we read that in scripture? Like, I've got one that bats it away, one that gives it to me. Like, why? Why did you give me these? Don't don't they cancel each other out? Like, what? What's what? And uh, it, it it's. I think what you see with the Arminian is a desperate attempt to recognize biblical truths and avoid the title of being called a Pelagian or try and stay within the camp of, you know, being a good reformed uh, adherent. So um, you get some of these inconsistent positions. Yeah, it's, it's just real strange to me. It's like, where are the Jewish total depravity believers? Like like the people who only accept the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Where's where are those people at? They, they don't exist because this no. is not something that is like taught in the Bible. And so people have to turn to Paul, who's written uh, hundreds of years later after the latest book in the Hebrew Bible. And then they're like, this is where it's taught. It's like, did they not know this before? If if all your evidence is focused in like one part of the Bible, you're probably misreading something somewhere. That's no ge general general rule of thumb. All people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel and graciously enables those that hear the gospel to respond to it positively in faith. God regenerates those who believe in Christ. Faith logically precedes regeneration. God's saving grace is... So David says, uh, Sadducees. Um, yeah, so when Josephus writes about the Sadducees, uh, he talks about them affirming a type of fate. It wasn't fate of the Calvinistic fate 
Um, there was one example that was given, like uh, there's there's someone who's kind of fated to die at a certain time. And if he's evil, he dies in a commission of a crime. Or if he's good, he dies through like a ladder accident. So their fatalism was a fatalism with like like certain events or life milestones had had certain fatalistic elements, but there was leeway within that fatalism for how that would occur. And so the Essenes have some interesting literature about people who might have be born good or evil or have dispositions towards one or the other as like a birth characteristic. But none of this is like total depravity. Like everyone's born with some sort of metaphysical sin nature that limits their ability to be good or anything like that. There, there doesn't seem to be a Jewish equivalent to total depravity. Mm -hmm. you, you, you can get some fatalism. You can get some determinism, but not to this extent. No, the, 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 the ancient Hebrew views uh, were that God had given man um, appetites uh, that were more of like your loftier spiritual appetites um, and your lower, baser, more animalistic appetites that we needed for survival. And they were all good and blessed and eaten. But if you surrender to your, your lower appetite, instead of just enjoying food and the taste buds God gave you so that you have energy and health, you become, you know, obese because you're becoming a glutton and you're, you're giving yourself over or, Hey, you can enjoy, you know, sexual intercourse with your, your wife and that's pleasurable and it gives children and it grows the family, be fruitful, multiply, but you can give yourself over to that and therein become engaged in, um, um, uh, I don't even, I can't even think of the word. What's the word when you have, uh, uh, sex outside of marriage. See, I'm too wholesome. What is what? Fornication. Fornication. Yes, you. Various forms of fornication, and uh, and so that was kind of the Hebrew view is is that you have these these drives and, and appetites that are good when ruled over, and if you give yourself over to them, they will control you, and that's that's why you even see different conceptions of what the devil or the satan is within a, a lot of uh, Judaism, because they're going to refer to it more of the um, the giving yourself over to these lower, baser appetites, uh, the Yetzer Hara, the Yetzer Hatov. But you don't have anything in Judaism that comes uh, remotely close to Augustinian original sin or total depravity. All right, I'll, I'll go ahead and hit play. Resistible, which is to say that he dispenses his calling, drawing, and convicting <clears throat> grace, which would bring us to salvation if responded to with faith in such a way that we may reject it. Those that hear the gospel may either accept it or reject it, to their own eternal destruction. Apart from the realm of pleasing the Lord and doing spiritually good, people often have free will, which means they ha have, uh, with respect to an action, they can at least either do the action or refrain from doing it. People often have genuine choices and are therefore correspondingly able to make choices. God has ultimate and absolute free will. His choice to supernaturally free the will of the sinner by his grace to believe in Christ is that is interesting that God has free will. Does he, in your view, Dan Chapa, have free will? Can he choose to do things, new things, make decisions, have volition? Now, that would be a fun debate to have with, with Dan as well, because I think there's going to be more inconsistency there. I really do. Yeah. Uh, people like to compartmentalize their theology. And so uh, you'll listen to a Calvinist sermon about God's love and and how he interacts with us and and answers prayers and then you'll get to like a systematic sermon where they're like oh god's immutable and impassable and nothing could change him 
his emotions would destroy his his simplicity things like that it's it's compartmentalized and so i think he's doing that a little bit here god has free will yes within the bible god has free will god has volition to make decisions make decisions arbitrarily uh, he's not forced into some sort of metaphysical formula for how he responds that that is that is the typical biblical narrative so he's not wrong there right i'll concede that happily as a matter of the exercise of his own sovereign free will okay so now let's get into some of the text john 6 is a key one john 6 44 through 45 says no man can come to me unless the father who sends me draw him and i will raise him up on the last day it's written in the prophets they will all be taught of god everyone who hears and learns from the father comes to me yeah, I, I I literally think he's talking about like physically walking to him. I think I, th I think well, it's about people within his lifetime getting out of their seats and walking over to Jesus. I, I don't think it's this Calvinist metaphysics of like a spiritual compelling. In in the debate, Dan asked me, because this John I asked him, I said, What do you think is your best, most clearest, explicit verse in scripture? that identifies the unique distinctives of total depravity. And he said, John 6, 44, which uh, it, it doesn't. He's, he's having to eisegete that, that baggage into the text. But one of the examples that he gave was, and it gets a little confusing, but of a tow truck. And he's like, let's say one is in neutral, you know, and it pulls the, the car. Was it drawn? I was like, yeah, if I understand your analogy. And he goes, well, what if it's in park and it, it stays there? And I was like, well, it was still acted upon, right? Uh, it's resisting. Like, don't you believe that we can resist the drawing? Like, <laughs> are, are, don't Arminians reject irresistible grace? Like, what do you, I don't know what you're arguing for right now. And uh, so he wanted to argue that John 6.44 was, was effectual prevenient grace, which is irresistible grace. That, so he was arguing not as an Arminian here, but as a, as a Calvinist for irresistible grace. There's that and, Calvinist uh, song that goes around, you know, the I'm not a Calvinist and it's a song. And mm -hmm. he's like, maybe two or three points of tulip is part of the lyrics. And maybe maybe that's what's going on here. Yeah, I don't know. But he he we went into uh, we went into the word Helco. Uh, you know, he, he asked me at one point, you'll see, he goes, give me a lexical example of where Helco means to be wooed. Because I was like, even the Reformed can't agree if it means to be dragged by force, to be wooed, to be loved, to be drawn. And he's like, well, give me a lexical. And I was like, I'm just showing inconsistency in your 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 side's position. I, I wasn't trying to make a lexical argument. I was just showing that even your side disagrees over it. But uh, this is one of the key positions that he kind of hanged his hat on, which was this, this whole idea of no one can come unless drawn. And um, it doesn't say anything about being created with Adam's guilt being imputed to you. It doesn't say anything about being unable to believe the gospel. Um, you know, and, and I noted John 12, 32, and we get into all of that, but, but yeah, this is, this is a key passage for him in this debate. Yeah. I, I don't think this verse applies to, let's say before Jesus is born um, because it's just, I, I think it's categorically not about what he claims like the people in Moses' day are not drawn to Je Jesus. Jesus does not exist to be drawn to. He doesn't have this public ministry that's going on at the time of Israel. And later on in John, we learn that this is 
this is all contextual to Jesus's ministry rather than some sort of metaphysical formula because he says, I fulfilled what you tasked me to keep all those to whom you brought to me. Uh, but there was one exception. Yeah. One exception was, of course, Judas. And he says, we needed that exception so that this prophecy could be fulfilled. It wasn't like, not, it's just like a cyclic type of prophecy. Not and, like and, a, and, and notice, notice the emphasis here in the text. It says, They'll be taught by God, not effectually graced, but they're going to be taught. Uh, everyone who has heard, and that, that implies that there's there's a, a proclamation, and that that echoes the whole like, how can they believe unless one preaches, and how can they hear unless one has been sent? You know, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This this seems to be more of an example of uh, those who were already faithful uh, Jews committed to the one God. Um, were being given over to this Messiah that was coming, you know, and it was it was it has very specific implication, um, and it doesn't seem at all to contain those unique distinctives of total depravity. It just they're just not there, right? And who's who is he talking to? Who's Jesus talking to right now? It's six forty one. <laughs> He's just talking to standard Jews. I I think a lot yeah. of people also forget the rhetorical effect that this has it's like you guys don't believe in me well guess what everyone who who god draws to me will believe in me and so the implication is you guys are rejecting god since you don't believe in me uh you're you're not part of god's kingdom you're not part of god's people this is rhetorically insulting his audience yeah and do you think they understood that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure yeah. they took it very yeah. with great Absolutely. offense. With great offense is where. Where do we go, Master? You're the one with the words of life. You know, like there were just a few people that that weren't offended by that. They all understood it. Yeah, right. I just had a stream on Acts 15, and in Galatians, in Galatians, uh, Paul calls these people false brothers. And if it's the same incident in Acts 15, and I think it is, they're just normal brothers. He's, he's rhetorically calling him that because it's insulting and it emphasizes his disgust and disapproval of what they're doing. Mm. It's rhetorical. There, there there are, you can have rhetorical points. And so when he says, oh, you Corinthians, you are in need of nothing. Could that be sarcasm? It sounds like it could be sarcasm. You, you can, uh, these are normal letters written by normal human beings to communicate normally to normal listeners. These are not technical manuals, and they could use idiomatic speech in ways that we might not enjoy as Christians. So you, Jesus should never insult people. He's calling people whited, whited tombs, right? Yeah, whitewashed tombs, absolutely. And uh, he's calling uh, Gentiles dogs and things like that. It's like uh, Jesus sometimes insults his audience. This might, in fact, be what's going on. But okay, we'll listen to his argument. I don't think we've heard his argument yet. And then verse 65, Christ says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. God enables us to believe in Christ. Drawing is a necessary condition for us to have faith. Now coming to Christ equals believing in Christ, which we can see from John 6, 35. It involves an act of intellect and the will. So we cannot choose to believe in Christ unless the, the Father first, preveniently, draws us into faith. Now, when you talk about drawing, physical drawing implies force on an object in the movement of the object. 
but this isn't physical drawing. Now, mental, mental drawing implies an influence to draw in a positive response of our will being drawn. It references both God's activity and our activity. Invitation or provision are not good synonyms for drawing because it does not imply our movement or our activity. When God draws us, our thoughts and desires move towards Christ. Now, this drawing is resistible, but it is God's drawing us. He's moving us towards Christ. Now, um, the issue here is people's flesh. It's The issue is not a lack of information or lack of opportunity. In John 6.40, there's a plain statement of the gospel, as plain as John 3.16. Christ said to his audience, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. The gospel is right in their faces, and they still can't believe. Also, Christ says that the flesh profits nothing, and his words are spirit and life. And Peter says that Christ has the words of eternal life. So again, the issue is not a lack of information. So I, I think that one of his points that he he doesn't articulate, but he just assumes, his presumption is that if there wasn't this barrier, this metaphysical barrier stopping people from believing the gospel, just showing them the gospel means that they would believe the gospel mm. uh, it, it be, because he, he talks about that he equates everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him should have eternal life he equates that with they they saw the gospel and didn't believe it therefore there has to be this barrier yeah absolutely no he, he's he's presuming yeah he's absolutely presuming that when when he's mounting his defense of it mm -hmm. right and he might turn to something like paul or something like that like if the rulers of this age knew what they were doing then they would have been believers things like that but it's not explicit in this text and it's it's a pretty massive assumption that that could be where this whole disagreement is stemming based on his opening slide that he believes that the gospel can just override anyone's desires or will and people can't willingly there's people that i've talked to who are like i would rather be in hell it's like i don't want to be with god i hate god uh, even if he's real i'd rather be in hell away from him it's like people can make these decisions against even things they believe yeah and, and I, I think dan would just go well oh, that's because they're totally depraved that they're at enmity they're created at enmity with god and it's like that, that that go back in time to the person who just uttered that they would rather be in hell because they hate God. That hell that hatred developed, just like I, uh, in Psalm fifty eight three, the wicked go astray. They they depart the womb and they uh, deviate from their state of innocence. They were created in fearfully and wonderfully knit together by God in their mother's womb. They develop this bitterness. They develop this hatred. They choose sin. They 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 carefully culture and and manicure their their character and their nature uh it's not that they were created in a default state of hating god and i, I bring up some uh, uh various verses in scripture that will show that but but yeah he's operating on this default position that well if, if you didn't if you weren't created hating god then you would have to love him by by default it seems like or, or that the gospel would overwhelm you um but again it's it's this invisible blue aardvark that bats away truth. That's why God gave you the invisible pink elephant that gives you truth. And it's like, we're, we're adding and complicating matters here. You're, you were created capable of freely accepting or rejecting truth. Yeah. I'm going to hit play. The father's drawing is invisible as we can see from verse 40, 
46. And it overcomes our flesh and um, our inability to trust in Christ. Okay, there th that was it explicitly. I, I should have waited three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the next text I'd like to bring up is 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus Christ is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The phrase in the Holy Spirit is an in, and it's either in the location or more likely in this context, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can say that Jesus is Lord. This is a plain statement that we need the Holy Spirit to be able to say that Jesus is Lord. It's a plain statement of the necessity of provenient grace. Now, um, people have responded in various ways. Some people might say, well, um, this is talking about spiritual gifts. It's a preamble to the discussion of spiritual gifts, but what it does is it sets a common foundation. All believers have a common foundation of having the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit works in, in each one individually, various different gifts. Other people might say, well, this is talking about uh, an external declaration of faith rather than actual faith in the heart, but that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to think that you can say to yourself, Jesus Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit, but to say it out loud, you need the Holy Spirit. That, that position doesn't make any sense to me. Then other people will say, well, the Holy Spirit uses means. Now, th this is not just the Holy Spirit's prior inspiration of Scripture, which is not mentioned here at all. This passage is not about the inspiration of, of um, Scripture. Furthermore, it says... All right, so what is your reading on 1 Corinthians 12, 3? Well, in my, in my response, I cited how John Chrysostom pointed to catechumens who they believed had not yet received the Holy Spirit, but were confessing Christ in name and doing so sincerely. And he also pointed to the demons who confessed Christ as Lord, as well as a soothsayer that followed Paul uh, and confessed that Christ was Lord. And so uh, the passage isn't saying that, that you have to have this in order to have the ability to say it. Uh, but this has more to do with being with. It's more of an allegiance. It's more of saying like, yes, I'm in agreement with this. And uh, yes, I believe this. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think I think Dan was was reading his, his total inability into this text because it, clearly there are exceptions. Um, and I don't think that, that it, it's being applied in the way that Dan was applying it. Yeah, I, I, I also don't think... Paul is laying down metaphysical principles in the either, anything like that. I think it is about affiliation, a loose affiliation that the people who claim Jesus is God are the good guys. And the people who claim Jesus is not God are the bad guys. And well, so it's like the, the, when it says, you know, in the Holy Spirit, it can also it can also be translated, you know, as with the mind of God. That we're aligning ourselves like not my will, but your will be done. We're coming into submission no one can say and truly mean Jesus is Lord unless they're submitting to him. Um, and that would be more of an assumption of ability rather than total inability. It would be more of an assumption of an innate state of man's ontology rather than a need for provenient grace. Right. It's Michael Heiser has that quote that's never base any dogma off of uh, the use of a preposition because they're notoriously flexible. So you don't... Yes. You don't want to look at a prepositional phrase and be like, oh, because it's worded this specific way, this is what specifically what it means. You got to say it could mean this. It could mean that if someone's in the army, maybe they're affiliated with the army. Maybe they're inside physically an army. 
maybe they're like that's what they're into something like that um it prepositions can mean that there's there's a wide wide range of things that prepositions mean absolutely and you'll see that the two the two leading verses here uh john 6 44 we're, we're told that is speaking of irresistible grace and then we're going to first corinthians 12 3 and we're arguing over the greek word en and whether that means with in through in whom um and and this is supposed to show us that man is created with adam's imputed guilt his innate inability under god's wrath uh, unable to understand and accept spiritual truth, uh, at enmity with God. N none of that's actually stated in any of this. And, and later I use a little uh, baking analogy to draw this out. I'm like, you know, there's this recipe to bake chocolate chips, and but chocolate chips aren't in the recipe. But Dan is assuming the egg, the flour, the sugar, the oven all assume chocolate chips. And I'm holding up the cookie. I'm looking at the, re the recipe. There's no chocolate chips here. Like, you're, you're telling me total depravity is there. It's not there. You're telling me total depravity is here. It's not there. You know, you're just assuming it. Am I supposed to pretend that these cookies are chocolate chips, even though there aren't any in there? And um, but that's that's what I think what he did with most of his proof texts. Right. So he he is providing, quote unquote, some evidence. But the problem is that his verses don't explicitly make his claim. It doesn't actually talk about total depravity, you're not going to find a paragraph of text. You're, if, you, if you're reading a systematic theology, you're going to find a section, I'll say, total depravity. And that's going to have like three or four paragraphs des describing what it is and how it functions that just does not exist in the Bible. And yeah. so that's why it's really weird. People are like, look at this verse. Well, verses are like one sentence, two sentences, maybe half a sentence. You're getting those five paragraphs of text from that one sentence, some, something's wrong there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're reading into it. You've, you've, you've packed your bags and you're cramming your luggage into this one little blurb from scripture and it's just not there. And we're in, it's through in the Holy Spirit that this happens. And then throughout the chapter, we can see that the Spirit is currently and actively enabling all the things we do. So all the things that the Holy Spirit is doing, he's currently actively working in people. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. So this is not just the previous inspiration of Scripture. Now let's look at pre, uh, let's take a systematic look at prevenient grace from various angles. So we'll look at it from God's perfect standard from original. Oh, no. What did he do to this slide? <laughs> he should have spread it out. And uh, not covered his title. I don't know. Yeah, it was it was very hard for me to track. It was very hard for me to because I'm over here like typing frantically, trying to make notes to address everything. And I'm like, okay, what 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 circle am I looking at? Okay, prevenient grace. What 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 is this little circle pointing at? Okay, what am I trying to look here? Systematic look at prevenient grace from is that various angles? Okay, uh, you know. So I, I was panicking when that came up. I'm like, how do I how do I notate this so that I can flow my what, okay, what is this slide communicating to us? Uh, you know, I guess there, he has a lot of things that if you squint at them and you combine them and cobble them together, you may get provenient grace out of it. I, I don't know. James writes, what did I miss? You missed uh, Warren's breakdown over losing a debate on total depravity. <laughs> the tears were flowing. Oh, I was I was sobbing, man. I have a box Cons of wadded up tissues over here, just snotting. 
I was ugly crying, man. It was not good. More than usual. (laughs) That's right. right. Yeah, I I don't know what this slide's communicating. I just, I, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if you're a teacher and you're trying to teach something. It's maybe it's visual. Ah, we'll may, we'll let him explain it. Maybe maybe that'll help me. Original gospel from depravity and our need for provenient grace from direct statements about provenient grace from the resistance of provenient grace and then also believers need in provenient grace. So let's start with God's perfect standard. God requires perfection. Adam was perfect and was able to perfectly obey. While unbelievers can do relative good works, like staying faithful to their wife or telling the truth, because their works are coming from an impure source and are not out of love for God, they're not out of trust for God, they don't have respect for God's authority, and they're not for the glory of God, even their best works are tainted with sin, and every individual work that an unbeliever performs is polluted with sin. Like Isaiah, we will all be undone in the presence of the Lord. Now let's look at the um, passages that talk. Oh, he just skipped. Uh, may, maybe those were his proofs, that his, uh, his other bullets there. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew 5. I, I'm imagining he's at a board and he's got all these different proof texts and all these little lines drawn. The red string. One. The red string. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, like he's doing a murder mystery. Yes. Um, because you got Matthew, you got Hebrews, you got Romans. And again, it's weird to me that you're making your case and you just got like one verse and you got, you got Jesus saying you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What's the context of that? What, what's going on? What does he mean by that? It must mean whatever is described in this block of text on top of that. It, because I don't, I guess, I don't know how that works. It's actually really weird. I always bring up, uh, people get really mad at me. They're like, all have sinned. I was like, well, did, did Job sin? <laughs> it's like the text says he's perfect and they get real bad. They're like, well, he must have sinned. It's like, well, the text doesn't say that. And, and then they start scrambling and they get real mad at me. It's like little babies don't sin, you know, like the ones who die in the womb, uh, who are aborted. They, these are not sinner babies. Oh, we're going to get into that too here. We're going to get into that too, Chris. You haven't seen the debate yet. We, we touch on all this stuff. <laughs> it gets fun. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, it's impossible to please him. All right. What's the context there? For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 14, Like, yeah. So uh, he does this A.W. Pink thing where he just makes a bunch of illusions. Do you spend any time on these verses? Me? Um, yeah. I, they, they went by so fast. Uh, I really just stuck to uh, Romans, excuse me, um, John 6, 44 and uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. We spent a lot of time on those two. Yeah. So this is a good debate slide for him because he's he's laying out a series of evidences that would take a long time to respond to, but it looks on paper like it's pretty well put together. So it, it, for the debate, this was a good slide for him. But here's one thing that I, I discovered, and it may just be my own um, impediment. Uh, I had trouble following what he was saying versus what was on the screen. And I was struggling, <laughs> you know, do I look at the squirrel climbing the tree or do I look at the bird in the bird feeder? And I could not, I could not go back and forth and, and really keep up. And that may just be a little ADHD coming from uh, from yours truly, but 
um, it, it made it difficult for me to be able to, to track the argument. So I was trying to hear what the, the claims he was making while considering the verses he was, he was citing. But, uh, but yeah, I wasn't able to get through all these. Yeah, granted, this doesn't seem like it has anything to do with total depravity. And it's sometimes people will do that in debates. They'll, they'll start talking about something else other than the debate topic. It, but it's put together pretty well. So people are like, oh, yeah. But I'm not seeing total depravity here. Basically, no. his argument is if you're not a believer in God, then nothing you do can please God, which is different than total depravity. Well, and then also, you know, the the, the Bible has different um, different views on uh, willful disbelief, like I refuse to believe versus ignorance. Like, I just don't know. Um, and so what he's doing is, is he's, he's merging these categories and saying that we're created in a state of willful disbelief. That we're at enmity that we willfully reject it rather than just being ignorant and lacking um, knowledge or anything like that. Um, does does he, he, he makes that case that like, it's not a metaphysical, like a uh, shield, a cosmic shield around the Bible that, that they're just like, ugh. And they just well, he, he deals with open. enmity. He, he deals with enmity quite a bit in this. He says we're created uh, at enmity with God, um, and that that's the reason why uh, we don't have faith, and that everything that we do is is sinful uh, prior to being preveniently graced, choosing that, and then being regenerated. But I also touch on regeneration because I, I quote Arminius, and and that that seemed to throw him for a loop. But let's 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 let this play. Performs is polluted with sin. Like Isaiah, we will all be undone in the presence of the Lord. Now let's look at the um, passages that talk about the fall. Pain and childbearing, family hierarchy, working to eat, and mortality are all corporate curses passed on to the whole human race through the sin of the first parents. Sadly, even infants die. Now the seed of the woman is Christ. And God, because of the fall, put enmity or hostility between Satan's descendants and Christ. Those who commit sin are of the devil. So before the fall, mankind did not have hostility towards Christ. But due to the fall, we have hostility towards Jesus Christ. Now, in strict justice, God could have sent Adam to hell the moment he sinned, but he didn't do that. Now, had God just sent Adam to hell, no one would have been impacted by Adam's sin except Adam. But instead, God was long-suffering with Adam and provided him the gospel as a remedy for his sins. The scope of original sin and Christ's work are coextensive in Romans 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 15.22. So while it's true we die in Adam, it's also true that no one is without a solution. Also, everyone personally sins anyways, and we would have all fallen like Adam did had we been in his shoes. Now let's look at passages that talk about depravity. Due to the fall, we're separated from God, spiritually dead, and at enmity with Christ. In the I'm, I'm going to go back to that slide. There's some interesting claims there. In that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I think this is a physical death. I think uh, I think uh, God was threatening to kill them, and then decided not to, based on giving them mercy. They, they he's like, what happened? Why did you do this? They gave an explanation, and God seems to have considered it decided not to kill them and instead banished them. So that, that's my position on this. I don't think there was a metaphysical change. A lot of people take that on that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they take it like it's going to be a spiritual death. 
and and that that's somehow a concept within the Hebrew Bible. I don't think they thought like that. No, well, if you if you look at it, it is about man's mortality. Um, and, and and subsequent to to Adam eating from it, he was prevented from eating from the tree of life. Right. So that's where that's where from that moment, you know, he became subject to death. Well, I'm, I'm saying that God originally planned to kill them like the same day, but when they he asked for explanations of what happened, and then they gave him explanations. Then he like commuted their sentence, like, and that's that's an entirely reasonable um, understanding and interpretation as well. There's nothing there that says in the day you eat of it, you'll no longer be able to understand spiritual truth. Um, all of your offspring will be at enmity with me, except unless they're conceived without sex. Um, you know, there's there's none of there's none of that there. Um, yeah, and, and and just just for the record. Uh, I know, I know uh, Dan has brought David Lewis on Turretin Fans' channel several times. And David Lewis always says, well, Warren believes man was created, you know, uh, mortal and would have died no matter what. And I'm like, I, I don't know how many times I have to actually say, like, no, I, I believe Adam became subject to death. He became mortal as a result of his, his choice. Whether people agree with me or not, I do think that mortality was a consequence for uh, for Adam's sin, and uh, it's it's weird that that uh, that position that I hold would be misrepresented so so contrarily. Yeah, if he wants to say that, I believe that. Right? Yeah, I'll I'll take that. I I think that their eternal life was contingent on access to the tree of life. That that's what I feel is the mm -hmm. case. Well, so, like even in the early even in the early church, you'll see like descriptions uh, where they were in a state of almost like Schrodinger's cat. So, so, you know, they, they could have eaten from the tree of life or they could have eaten from the tree of knowledge. And so they were in a state of virtual immortality, even though they had not yet chosen. So, so that's one view that they'll hold, but then they'll also say that they had to eat from it frequently so as to be sustained. Right. So there's a Marvel comics, Wolverine, who's supposedly like super immortal, you could drop a nuke on him and then he'll regenerate. The nuke won't destroy him completely. So I, I wonder if that's the Dan Chapa position on the state of Adam and Eve before the fall that like you could nuke them and they just wouldn't die. Like you could, you could like explode the entire planet, shoot them off into space. Yeah. <laughs> zero gravity, zero oxygen, and they'll just survive forever just floating in space. I wonder, I wonder if that's his position. Yeah, I'm, it, I'm not sure. <laughs> just, just a thought experiment. I, I like how he mixes in like uh, Psalms. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Yeah. King David, I just put it on his channel. I pulled up the reference to King David saying that uh, also uh, he was serving God from the, the womb. Right. Yeah. Well, what I, I addressed this in the debate, too. And I was like, behold, I was conceived in the back of a Ford Taurus. Therefore, I have the nature of a four door sedan. Like it doesn't it doesn't work that way that the setting of one's conception, the circumstances around one's conception do not necessitate a, an ontological change. Um, you know, just it just it just doesn't. It, it's silly that they would read that. And even in my debate with with Matt Slick, Matt did not use that passage because he knew better. That is an interesting. Uh, 
Are you assuming that? Did he mention that? Is that? Or he just, told me. Or, he said, "Well, you'll know. I didn't use that passage. You'll notice I didn't use that passage because <laughs> because so, he can't help but brag. He yeah. can't help but expose himself. It's it's so like Matt, Matt was Matt was going. Why well, did you'll see? I didn't use that pass. I didn't use it, did I? I didn't use it. And I go, no, you didn't. Kudos. Like that's that's pretty cool. Why? Uh, why are, but why Dan most, did. Why are most hackers exposed and caught? Because they, they can't help but brag about the things that they did. Yeah. That's how they're caught. It's like people just can't just sweep something under the rug. They they have to take credit. That's it. I guess it's human nature to try to do that. But yeah, Job says that he was good from the womb. From the womb, he's helping uh widows and and uh helping people. It's th- these are just common expressions. And of course, mm-hmm. I take uh the I, is it Golden Guy who does the commentary? No, it's uh, Brueggemann does the commentary on that verse. I was brought forth in iniquity. He's just saying this is a general lament by David about the wickedness within his life and not a theology of <laughs> metaphysics of how you're born. It's Oh, it there's, even... there's, there's a dozen ways that this passage can be interpreted. And you and I have done this before. Right. And we've examined them and we've shown it can be considered hyperbole. It can be considered about the the setting of the sin. It can be a reference to the sins that his parents committed, drawing a contrast between uh, his own sin with Bathsheba. There's um, all sorts of ways that this can be interpreted. I mean, I think we went, we had. I mean, I think I think we had over five different, if I recall correctly, over five different ways that this could be interpreted without having to assume some sort of Augustinian anthropology. Yeah, the next of the verse is really funny. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And Drew McLeod's always like, does that mean universalism is true? Everyone's going to be made alive in Christ? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like the gospel isn't the power of, of, of God unto salvation because we can't respond to it. And then, you know, Jesus, his all is a lot smaller than Adam's all. You know, so Jesus's all was less effective. You know, it just... Nobody, nobody stops and considers like, well, do I really believe what I'm saying? Um, yeah, it, it, it is problematic. Only sins anyways, and we would have all fallen like Adam did had we been in issues. Now let's look at passages that talk about depravity. Due to the fall, we're separated from God, spiritually dead and at enmity with Christ, and the image of God is marred. We are enslaved to sin, and Satan is our father. In our fallen state, we can do nothing. Nothing is pure. We are unfit for any good work. We cannot submit to God or please God. Our minds are blinded by Satan so that we can't see the light of the gospel. What is he? He's he's not a Calvinist. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's funny was he he did a a review of my debate on total depravity with J.D. Martin and Matt Slick. And I said that this view holds that man is created spiritually dead. And he objected and goes, well, I don't know what that means. The term's not very helpful. It's too ambiguous. You know, does he mean this, 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 or this? And then he turns around and goes, man is created spiritually dead. And, um, you know, I'm seeing some inconsistency to say the least. And I think that Dan is walking the line, not between Arminianism and uh, provisionism, but I think, or, or some otherism, I think he is um, a Calvinist who is leaning towards Arminianism because he's already affirmed um, an irresistible grace. Um, you know, in, in some of the, the he's ref, he's affirmed a form of regeneration, which we'll get into, uh, like pre-faith regeneration. So we'll 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 see that. I think he's he's closer to the Calvinist side than than anything else. 
and, well, and, and, his and, and people, is a Calvinist, people, right? What's that? His co-host is a Calvinist. It says conversations in Calvinism. Does he mean uh, uh, Helco? <laughs> is it? What does in mean? Conversations in Calvinism. Does that mean? Is that Helco? Is that? Does that mean he has Calvinism in him? Um, what does that mean, Chris? Uh, conversations fellow, in Calvinism. Fellow Calvinists discussing Calvinism. <laughs> there you go. That's what that means. <laughs> Unbelievers' flesh. I like Dan. I like Dan. So God. please don't. Please don't. I like, I like yeah, it I don't too. want any I don't want anybody seeing me making jokes and and picking and thinking that I'm uh in any way like uh upset with Dan or anything. I really genuinely like him and I would I would give him the same sort of of ribbing like like I'm a big brother and I, I like to pick on people. And it's one of the ways that I show my love and my kids suffer through that because I pick on them mercilessly. But I I it's just the way that I express my love. So I, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm being malicious in this this is all good natured uh it is not depraved ribbing <laughs> so far leaving us depraved paul's point in romans 8 isn't the trivial tautology that you can't obey god while you're not obeying god those in the realm of the flesh are not in the realm of the spirit and therefore cannot submit to the god's law or please god both the Mosaic law and the gospel of Jesus Christ are veiled, even in the face of open and clear gospel proclamations. The devil's lies and temptations are so effective because our flesh is so weak and susceptible. The solution to Satan's veiling. So, yeah, well, one of the things I disagree with him on is this idea that you need like some sort of complete perfection. That, that never was an Old Testament or Hebrew Bible concept that God is looking for. Never any sin ever under there's there was a contingent of righteous god called them righteous uh there's a generation of the righteous the righteous is a people group throughout the bible and it's it's not like just because they had one sin or something like that now they're disqualified from that that that, that never was the idea that's the proof text for that tend to focus on paul and Paul is talking to a specific people group at a specific point in time to argue a specific doctrine that his audience does not agree with at the time because yeah. they didn't grow up with this. They didn't grow up with this, uh, hey, we, we're Jews and now we're equal to Gentiles. And Paul's over here arguing we're no better than Gentiles. Yeah, yep, exactly. In the gospel is not in our flesh, but rather God who spoke oh, and, and the world Chris, into existence must be. One, one, one thing that you'll note is a conflation between a weakness and an inability. You know, like I am, I have a weakness for ice cream, but I'm not unable to resist it. And, and there's this conflation because we're in our flesh, we're weak, but that doesn't mean in our flesh, we're totally unable. And you'll see that, that Dan conflates weakness with inability consistently. Maybe he has a different experience with life than you. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. maybe. I mean, I don't know. I think he's thinner than me, so maybe he can resist ice cream easier. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> into our hearts. Okay, next let's talk about passages that uh, specifically talk about prevenient grace. God's prevenient grace frees us to believe. He opens our hearts to believe and makes us want to know him. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, showing us the need for a savior. The conviction. So one of my criticism with his debate style is like, if, if someone didn't know anything about total depravity and they're given this lecture, this is like 
a teacher trying to teach a very interested student about basics of a theory rather than a debate to try to show that your position is true rather than another position. Mm-hmm. And so if if you don't care about this, this lecture style is you're, you're just going to tune out. You're just going to lose interest right away. Like well, what's going on? He's got all these words, all these all these slides what's uh, no one knows prevenient grace what is prevenient grace i so i i don't i don't feel like it's a effective to debate strategy although it would be yeah. a good teaching lesson as you pointed out he's, he's doing a teaching thing like you would with like a sunday school perhaps but it's not a good debate format no and i, I think he does have the heart of a teacher he's he's very patient he's very methodical he's very soft-spoken very intentional in what he's saying. And so I think that he brought that same sort of approach to the debate. Um, you know, but I, I think you're, I think you're correct. I think it does generally detract from the overall presentation. Um, because at least for me, again, you know, I'm hearing him talk and I'm reading other passages, prevenient grace. There's this giant paragraph there and then he'll, he'll give a, a proof text reference and I have to stop and go, well, where was the context in this? What was this saying? What he's saying that this is prevenient grace. Where is total inability? And before I know it, you know, he's ten passages deep, and because it, it's not really exegeting, and I, I don't think he's intending to do that here. This is more of just a surface level view of defending his position. But none of this was actually exegeted, and uh, and so for for me, my learning disability, that's very distracting. Yeah, so like if you're debating like monetary policy or something like that, I, I'm getting chair moving noises from you. And then Sorry I, about I, that. I give like a whole Federal Reserve overview of how money's created and inflation and, and how it's lent out. People People's eyes are probably going to glaze over. It, it doesn't, it seems to be too high of level for how much time he has. of the Holy Spirit is an additional work above and beyond the inspiration of scripture. The Holy Spirit convicts us of Christ's righteousness and testifies of Christ. God gives us repentance and faith, which means he enables those under the snare of the devil to repent and believe. While we minister by sharing the gospel, which is like planting seeds, God causes the growth or uh, causes a person to respond in faith. The scriptures are sufficient as an instrument in God's hand for us to be able to respond in faith. Prevenient grace is a supernatural current work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart to enable them to trust Christ and then to obey his commands. Now let's talk about the spirit of truth who Christ sends. We need the presence and power of the spirit of truth for the conviction of sins. And he witnessed to us about Jesus Christ. The spirit of truth is the parcelate, which means a comforter, helper, or intercessor. God sent the spirit of truth to bear witness to the truth in the face of the world's opposition. This cannot be limited to the inspiration of scripture, preachers, or miracles, because the spirit of truth is being sent to those that already have the scriptures, preachers, and miracles. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth because they don't know the spirit of truth. But the disciples did know the spirit of truth via the spirit of truth dwelling with them and later inside them. But the dwelling with them was sufficient for them to receive the spirit of truth. So the spirit's living next to us is similar to his living in us, but his living inside us is a deeper and more lasting sense of the spirit of truth. Um, so there's three different states, 
being unable to receive the spirit because that we don't know him, the spirit's dwelling with us, which is sufficient to be able to receive him. And finally, the spirit living inside us, which is the full experience. The spirit of truth is given to the world to convince the world of sin and therefore the need of a savior and to convince the world of uh, Christ's righteousness. Without the spirit of truth inflaming our hearts with our desire for Christ, we would never believe. Um, people resist God's prevenient grace, like in, in Genesis 6, my spirit will not struggle with man forever, or and you resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, Shredhead writes, he just pulled that all out of thin air, LOL. Yeah, it's it's a weird slide, so I, I, I probably need to go look at all his references and figure out what he's doing with that slide. But uh, that's what I'm saying, it's like too high a level, he's making all sorts of claims in quick succession, big paragraphs of text. It's, I don't know how useful it is. Well, and you'll notice that the vast majority, the vast majority of this debate, Chris, has been on prevenient grace instead of total depravity, which is, which is a subsequent doctrine. It, it's not, it's not what we're actually debating. So, you know, he, he's, he's wasted probably 50% of his time defending prevenient grace rather than just total depravity. Right. And uh, it, it's like, how do you work with that in a debate? Yeah. I, I'm reminded of the Matt Slick debate, Matt Slick debate again, with Will Duffy on, d does is God evil in Calvinism? And the whole debate, Will Duffy just let him get away with it, was about what specific verses actually mean. It Will Duffy should have said, this debate's not about that. For the sake of debate, we'll say that these verses are read your specific way. That makes God evil. <laughs> I win the debate. He should have done that, <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't do that. And he, instead he's arguing about what certain verses mean. And uh, it's like, what are you doing? What are, you, you should have just, you should have just took the win. Take the win. As in Acts 7.51, believers need prevenient grace. So, so much more so do unbelievers need prevenient grace. With that, I'll, I'll, I'll end there. Dan Chapa. Thank you very much for that 15-minute opening statement. We are now going to hand it over to Warren. Warren, whenever you're ready. <laughs> We're at about an hour 15, so it takes over an hour to, to review 15 minutes. Uh, we might have to cut this off eventually, so hopefully less commentary on the Warren McGrew part. You also yeah, you, you can you can play mine. You can play mine at, at one and a half speed if you want. Statement <laughs> that would distinguish between your your different voices. Let's take a look at uh, how do we do this? We go uh, playback speed, and we'll go. Yeah, one twenty five is probably good. One twenty five. And the floor is yours. I'll start the timer when you're ready to go. Yeah. Uh, before I do that, I wanted to thank uh, uh, GMW. Says Chris, do you have any debates? I have a lot of debates. I just debated John Singleton on open theism. I debated Dan Chapa and Dan. Dana, some other D name on open theism. I debated Daniel Maddox on open theism on Isaiah. So I got I got a few debates out there. I got a unofficial debate that I put on on my channel with some Calvinist about Isaiah. It gets pretty heated. So if you want to see me interacting with a very hostile individual, that one's pretty good. So I got a few debates out there. Uh, Dan for inviting me to debate this topic with him and, and Donnie thanks for having me on the, the channel hopefully this will not be my last appearance I, I hope not to uh, commit any unforgivable sin here <laughs> but uh, I'll go ahead and I'll start uh, tonight we are debating is total depravity biblical uh, in short no it, it is not 
Total depravity is a 16th century bad take on a 5th century invention, which is at odds with the historic Hebrew understanding of the nature of man. It makes claims pertaining to the ontology of man, which are opposed to the teaching of scripture. So I would say it, it comes into play during Gnosticism in which people need special enlightening. And first century is where you see a rise of Gnostic, Gnostics. Even, even Paul is interacting with Gnostics and uh, Plotinus. It, that's, that's what first John is written to refute. But I was, I did not want to come in again. I'm, I'm, I have to pick how hard I punch. Right. Dan is a very nice guy. And so I don't want to come in throwing around the Gnostic term because that would be that would just be seen as being a bully. Right. Well, I was just going to say if I would I would switch it to maybe third century concern mm. because it's it's a lot more prevalent during the time of Augustine and the Gnostics and the debates between the Gnostics and the Platonists like uh, Plotinus in his Aeneids. He actually interacts with Gnostic Christians because they're the, they're this they're debating Platonism. Mm. The Gnostics and the Platonists are debating who has the better philosophy about how Platonism works because they're they're the same subset of people that that interaction is meaningful resulting in a distorted view of man and sin denying the power of the gospel corrupting the incarnation and redemptive work of Christ condemning infants and children to hell and robbing us of both reason and hope <clears throat> now, I, I realize these are not small claims, um, but I'm confident that as tonight unfolds, I'll be able to successfully demonstrate each one of these problems for you. Uh, but before I do that, we need to define total depravity. R.C. Sproul said that, uh, the, quote, the doctrine of total depravity describes and defines a particular view of original sin, which has its roots in the teaching of Augustine of Hippo, end quote. The doctrine holds that man's flesh, will, soul, and, yes, intellect are thoroughly corrupt and naturally incapable of rightly understanding God seeking after him, or disposing themselves to such reform. Their free will has been destroyed and lost. They cannot rightly understand and accept spiritual truth. They cannot repent. They cannot choose to follow God. They cannot accept the gift of salvation as it is offered, as they're created naturally hostile to the things of God. Now, as a result of all these cannots, total depravity is often called total inability. Question 25 of the Westminster Larger Catechism states, quote, the sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell. Yeah, did Dan Chapa define total depravity? I don't feel like he did. I, I think I think it might have been somewhere in one of the slides. Mm. I think it was somewhere in one of the slides, but I didn't I don't I don't I didn't come away with a real strong definition of it. Yeah, there there wasn't like a paragraph that he said. And like his whole thing was this is what that what encompasses total depravity. So it's kind of hard to get like a scope of the debate or it's like, what are we even talking about here? What is total depravity? I, I don't feel like I got that from him, but I did, I oh, did clarify. And I did oh. clarify with him prior to the debate, which I bring up because I, I wanted to get that locked down just in case something like this happened. I like to have that definition agreed yeah. upon beforehand so that I can always refer to our previous conversations where that was agreed to. Yeah, like the John Singleton debate that I had is like I got him in writing saying the open theism is the denial of God having um, innate, ungenerated, eternal, unfalsifiable knowledge of all propositions, past, present, future, things like that. And then his whole debate was like, if you turn to Daniel, there's things that God knows in the future. I'm like, how does that prove or disprove the debate proposition? It's like that's those things can exist without innate, ungenerated, eternal knowledge, right? And then 
I think he lost his main talking points because I tried to keep him on, on task of the debate. Yeah. The guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions, end quote. Now, while the catechism uses the phrase utterly indisposed, many reformed are quick to take note of a distinction between total depravity and utter depravity. Now, as noted in an article on Ligonier, utter depravity holds that uh, we always... Here's a comment in the side of uh, the actual debate. Chest hair, one less button, and a shorn beard would have really plastered on the image of not Calvinist. He didn't go far enough. This guy wants you to have like a leisure suit on. Oh, uh, next time, next time, I'm gonna ditch the undershirt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow dry the uh, the chest hair and fluff it up. <laughs> Try to get the chest hair going. I need what? to get a gold necklace too. I think I'll get a gold necklace to wear in there. I think that'll complete the look. I showed my wife Blade Runner yesterday, and there's like a bare chested scene of uh, uh, Harrison Ford, and he's just got this little fluff going on here. It's like. I guess that that sort of stuff flew in in the in the eighties. You know, that's that that was a good looking guy. Let's oh man, yeah. You, you you drive you drive your convertible down the road. You know, you let your chest hair just blow in the wind. It's very freeing. <laughs> Sin to the greatest extent possible, and in contrast, total depravity holds that while we don't always do the greatest evil possible at all times, that we are ontologically as bad off as we could be. To solve this ontological problem. The Calvinist will appeal to effectual prevenient grace, often called irresistible grace, whereby the elect and the elect alone are regenerated, given a new heart and a new mind, the gift of faith, thereby ensuring that they believe and are saved. But in contrast, the Arminian of... Yeah, it's so weird to me that like people don't, like Calvinists don't make that connection between Gnosticism and Calvinism needing that special enlightening. It's like that's, that's the whole point of Gnosticism is a special enlightening to know the truth. Well, they, what they do is they ignore the areas that they have in common and they point to the areas where they disagree. And so they're like, well, we don't believe in, you know, this, this and this about Gnosticism. And it's like, well, you know, you could get rid of that and still have Gnosticism. Right. And the Gnostics weren't a unified sect. There were various diverse. Exactly. And the common thread, the common thread was that we needed divine Gnosis. Right. It's. It, it, it is it is Gnosticism in the technical. Well, don't bring it up in the debate because right. you're being nice. But in the technical sense, that's what Gnosticism is: the divine enlightening for salvation or to be able to receive the spiritual truths. Yeah, affirms a universal enabling prevenient grace, wherein the individual's faculties are so enabled by a special work of God's grace that they then can either freely accept or reject the salvation offered in Christ. But tonight, we're not arguing over which solution to total depravity is best. We're not arguing over Calvinism versus Arminianism. Neither are we debating whether or not men sin. We both agree they do. Tonight, we're debating if total depravity accurately reflects man's ontology and the problem of sin as revealed in Scripture. Now, to defend his position tonight that total depravity is biblical, Dan will need to accomplish two things. One, he will need to provide passages in scripture where total depravity's unique distinctives are... Okay, so this is good. This is framing the debate. Framing the debate is a very critical part to any debate. Dan T Chapa does not frame the debate. He would have been good framing the debate, saying if my opponent needs to prove this, this, and this, and then revisiting that at a later time. Remember when I told you this? He didn't do that. 
just watch what he's doing. And so this 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 part right here is what a good debater will do. Frame the debate. What needs to happen in this debate? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I, uh, I I wanted to lay this out because really, if total depravity is biblical, there's really only two ways that you can defend it. And I even give a third, which I don't think is, a, is an honest representation. So I'll just let that play. Clearly and explicitly stated. Now, as there is no such passage in all of scripture where total depravity's unique distinctives are clearly and explicitly stated, Dan must rely heavily on a second line of defense tonight. And that is point two. He will need to provide various passages, which despite lacking such explicit language, can potentially still be used to support the unique distinctives of total depravity. So we'll need to be sure to carefully consider if the passages he offers actually teach total depravity in their original context, or if we're being asked to read this presuppositional ontology into them. Are we being presented with passages about men sinning, but being asked to assume this means we're created sinful? Are we being presented with passages speaking of death and man's mortality, yet being asked to assume this means inability? Yeah, like one of his verses was that uh, God helped uh, a female accept the gospel, therefore God makes and helps everyone Well, like he, he points, he points to Lydia, who was already a, a follower of God. And then he goes, oh, look, God took this lady who was already following her or following him and taught her about Jesus, therefore total depravity. And it's like, no, that, that you're ignoring the entire context here. You don't you don't understand the story. Right. And these these uh, hasty generalizations or the or it's a fallacy of composition are, are still fallacies. Yep. Ability or spiritual death at conception. Are we presented with passages speaking of the rightful guilt and condemnation of the wicked, yet being asked to assume this speaks of how we are conceived? These are all things that we have to be on guard for. However, a third option also exists for adherence of total depravity, and it's one that I, I hope that uh, Dan does not employ tonight, and that is to redefine it in such a way as to mitigate, downplay, or outright deny the claims of this doctrine, which is why I'm taking such great pains to properly define it here in my opening. Yes, tonight, I, a staunch critic of total depravity, and defending Orthodox Reformed sources as reliable articulations of the doctrine. Jacobus Arminius wrote, quote, In this state, the free will of man towards the true good is not only wounded, maimed, infirm, bent, and weakened, but it is also imprisoned, destroyed, and lost. Its powers are not only debilitated and useless, unless they be assisted by grace, but it has no powers whatsoever except such as are excited by divine grace, end quote. And in that same work, Arminius says, quote, in his lapsed and sinful state, man is not capable of and by himself either to think, to will, or to do that which is really good, but it is necessary for him to be regenerated and renewed in his intellect, affections, or will, and in all his powers by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, that he may be qualified to rightly understand, esteem, consider, and perform whatever is truly good, end quote. Now, did you catch that? Arminius stated our natural condition, the state we're created in, is unable to think, to will, or to do that which is really good, and we must first be regenerated before we can rightly understand the things of God. Now, that sounds a little bit like Calvinism's irresistible grace. But Dr. Brian Abishano and Martin Glenn, president and vice president, respectively, for the Society of Evangelical Arminians, wrote, quote, sin impacts every person, every part of every person's being, and that people now have a sinful nature with a natural inclination towards sin, making every human being fundamentally corrupt at heart. Therefore, they say, human beings are not able to think, will, or do any good in and of themselves, including merit favor from God, save ourselves from judgment, condemnation of God that we deserve for our sins, or even believe the gospel, end quote. Per total depravity's claims, the gospel is simply insufficient. 
an extra additional inward working of God's grace, overcoming our ontological inability is necessary. And this stands in direct opposition to scripture. As we read in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So yeah, I I don't know if uh, that verse right there is saying that there's a metaphysical property of the gospel that's just going to force people to believe it. I don't know if that's the point you're trying to make right there. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying that it that it is some sort of um, uh, metaphysical switch where if I just read the gospel over you, uh, that you're automatically saved. I'm not even arguing about uh, the way that the gospel works. I'm just saying that the Bible here in this instance says that it's the power of God unto salvation, and just on that service level, whatever it means, it cannot be compatible with the claims of total depravity. Because total depravity says that we can't understand it. We need some extra work. So I'm, I'm not even making a, an argument as to what that means other than on a surface level, it's not compatible with the claims of that system. Okay, I see. Now pay attention here. The word translated as power is dunamis, which means an inherent power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature or the means itself. It comes from the word dunamai, which means to be capable, strong, and effective. But as we've heard from total uh, depravity adherence, the gospel is not effective given our ontological inability, as the gospel itself is not an example of prevenient enabling grace. Unless anyone accuse me of, of misrepresenting Dan's position tonight, and I definitely don't want to do that, prior to this debate, I asked him to define total depravity, and he pointed me to the Society of Evangelical Arminians, which says, quote, in and of themselves and apart from the grace of God, human beings can neither think... Jeff writes, uh, if Warren is reading, he seems to be doing it more naturally than Dan. And we got him on uh, 1.25 speed. And so I'm, I'm guessing you read through this probably three or four times before the debate, just just to, to tone or fine tune no. that. No, I did not have a whole lot of time not. to prepare for this debate. Um, I, I, I have a lot going on personally right now, and I thought it was all going to be resolved and I would have more time to focus on the debate. So I only had maybe four or five hours to prepare for this, and I entered into this debate with no rebuttal prepared. I entered into it with no closing statement prepared, yeah. and I just had a very rough outline for this. I read over it, I think, twice see if I could get it under the 15 minute mark. And that's why you, if you hear it at normal speed, it sounds like it's going at 1.25 because I was terrified. I was going to run out of time. You're run out of time. Yeah. Like in my Will Duffy, uh, when I was with Will Duffy debating Dan Chapa, like I, I bled into his time for the opening statement. I like, Oh no, because he, he read my opening statement. He's like, you should add this and this and this, but, but adding those things cut into his time. I felt so bad. He had to rush his, his portion, but yeah, it's it's it, a debate. It's interesting. You only got so much time for the opening statement and you got like one shot at it. So maybe if you're doing a debate, you, maybe you get pre-recorded opening statements or something like that. Maybe you're allowed to just be like, hey, let's watch this video of me doing it. And you could just shake your head along. Oh, yeah, I, I think that that would help, too, if you could do a pre-recorded opening and give it to the other person so they could craft their rebuttal. I think that would be. I think that that would be good. And then all you're really hammering out is the uh, Q&A and the, the uh, cross-exam. Yeah, that would be a good format. Or if, if, if the whole debate was uh, recorded back and forth, uh, that the whole whole time, that'd be fine. Unless there's there's uh, interaction time. Yeah. that You can't pre-record that, really. Think, nor will, nor do anything good, including believe, end quote. 
And to be absolutely clear, I asked Dan if this enabling grace is not seen in the work and person of Christ or the sharing of this gospel, but rather if it's a mysterious... Roddy writes, this is Warren's Ben Shapiro impersonation. Oh, I didn't tell you. I did watch part of this, and it was the part where Warren says that we need to give more tax dollars to Ukraine. So I think that (laughs) is accurate. Ukraine doesn't care about your feelings. (laughs) ...working of God, which accompanies such things. And he affirmed this, summarizing his view by stating, quote, fallen mankind are naturally unable to believe the gospel, end quote. So we have our first very big problem, total depravity is at odds with Romans 1.16, that it is the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation, as it instead shifts the power from the gospel itself to provenient enabling grace as the cure for our inability. But yet another issue also arises. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 tells us, quote, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who fear of de- uh, through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For clearly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You see, a central tenet of the Christian faith is that the incarnation itself played a pivotal role in our healing and redemption, that Jesus assumed the totality of the human condition this side of Eden so as to redeem, heal, and restore us, delivering us from death to life. Yet, total depravity asserts that our flesh, will, soul, and intellect are stained by sin, imputed with Adam's guilt, and under the wrath of God the moment we come into existence. And therein it corrupts the incarnation of Christ, as described in Scripture, that he should... Yeah, one thing that's interesting is the the Old Testament Hebrew Bible concept of salvation due to the status of people you're related to. Like, like there's a point in Jeremiah or uh, Ezekiel, either one of those 18, Jeremiah 18, I think, where he says, no longer am I going to do that where the kids are saved for the sake of the parents or vice versa. Everyone's going to be judged for their own sins. But previously, like uh, Noah's kids, Noah's kids were not called righteous. They're they're saved on account of being affiliated with Noah. Uh, in, in Sodom, Lot, his family, they're not considered righteous. They're saved on account of being related to someone that God loves. There's there's familial salvation. And you even see this in the Talmud when it's talking. There, there's a scene that uh, if you watch my discussion with Dov Weiss, uh, where he talks about a point in the Talmud where where they're in heaven and uh, the kids had been judged for the sins of their parents. And in heaven, they ask God, they say, hey, since we were judged for the sins of our parents, they should be freed from uh, hell or whatever and brought to the state of heaven for our suffering and then god says hey okay those are a good point and then he like grants that something like that but it, it was was a common concept that individuals sometimes based on their status you're an unbelieving brother or something like that but because of your relationship with someone that god loves or someone who's righteous that you could be saved for their sake and it's and something that modern Christians don't want to consider because it kind of just messes with all salvation theories. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, 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 it also draws up those questions of like what it means to be a kinsman redeemer and, and whatnot. Yeah. David writes uh, Ezekiel. Yeah. Ezekiel 18. So Jeremiah 18, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18 is uh, individuals. Jeremiah 18 is nations. Shared in our flesh and blood, becoming a descendant of Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, Mary, assuming our nature and being made like us in all things. 
So to get around this, we see adherents claim Jesus did not incarnate, as Hebrews 2 describes, but instead they'll argue he assumed a pre-fall Adamic nature, which was not stained by sin or subject to death, nor did it need healing and redemption, and therein they deny the incarnation's essential role in our healing and deliverance. But yet another problem arises. We're told that man in his natural state is at enmity with God the moment he comes into existence in his mother's womb and therein cannot do anything. So in Dan Chapa's enmity passages, that was just enmity between snakes and humans, right? And then he took it to mean enmity between God and man. Well, later on, he's going to get into serpent seed uh, claims, which gets pretty interesting. And he's going to claim that that passage is all about enmity between God and man. All men, he believes, are seed of the serpent. Oh. oh, oh. Yes. Uh, oh, okay. Good, as he needs an additional working of grace. But in Romans 2, 14 through 15, we read, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. Their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or defending them. Did you catch that? This is written on their hearts, and as a result, many will be excused on the day of... GMW asks, how many monitors do you have? I have one giant monitor, and I'm moving my head around as I've got tiny little windows all over it. Yeah, let's, let's look, look at this. This is beautiful. Oh, oh. oh, dude, yeah, nice setup. I get this like an 80-inch TV or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, then I got a small monitor, but uh, it's pretty fantastic. Now I got one of those curved gaming monitors, um, and I just I'll put up a little window of my uh, Word documents. I'll have the screen that I'm watching from. I'll have like another note document, maybe one more file open. Uh, just you know, a lot of this was just um, me frantically shuffling things around, trying to uh, you know create a cohesive argument. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the inconsistent lighting on your face brings up uh, the question here. I don't know. You know, I've got I've got a light kit. I've got a light kit that I use for this because I'm vain. Yeah, LED light kit that you you put in front of the monitor facing towards you, or is it bouncing off? Uh, no, I've got like a little. Uh, I've got a professional little umbrella with um, uh, like light diffusing. <laughs> You know, I don't know how to use it very well, or, or maybe I'd look a little bit better, but it yeah. helps create some depth. Yeah, that's good. Uh, LED umbrella lighting is pretty good. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers will be justified. Yet total inability puts forth an ontology diametrically opposed to this biblical truth. And we're not anywhere near done listing the numerous problems of total depravity. As this doctrine holds that in our natural state, the state we're created in, we cannot rightly understand and accept spiritual truth. This causes all sorts of epistemological problems, which rob the adherent of any justified, reasonable belief as it assaults their God-given faculties and ability to reason. Now, the adherent can point to prevenient grace or irresistible grace, but both are supposed spiritual truths which are undermined by the foundational premise of total depravity itself. And yet more issues abound, affirming total depravity and speaking on infants. And children, Buddy Bauckham called them evil, as did Paul Washer. Jonathan Edwards stated, quote, it is most just, exceedingly just, that God should take the soul of a newborn infant and cast it into it. So when I jumped on Jan Dan Chapa's chat about this, I jumped on uh, briefly, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. But they're talking about this Eddie Vaughn, Eddie Vaughn, Eddie, whoever, the Vipers and Diapers guy. Mm -hmm. And they said it's out of context or something like that. 
No, so there, there's actually several sermons where Vadi Bakum uses the um, the same um, mechanics or the same structure, same framework for that, and he he, he very seriously calls children evil. It, this is this is his view, and he's like, you can cage evil. That's pretty much his view. Is like you can't really do much about it. And then he turns around and goes, we've got to give the gospel to our children. And then he turns around and goes, it doesn't matter what you do. You can't overcome this total depravity. You know, that, that requires God. So he's very inconsistent here. But I've got videos addressing all of that on my website, and they're just flat out wrong. No, he, he called them evil. Yeah. Apparently, I, I wrote on, on their channel, their comments, I, this someone was saying, is, is babies crying evil? I was like, yeah, the babies should just die. You know, it's just, no, they shouldn't cry for food. <laughs> yeah, how, how dare those those babies cry for food or comfort or you know love or or attention or uh, needing their diaper change that's clearly a sign that they're at enmity with god clearly <laughs> eternal torments end quote i put to you tonight that god will damn this doctrine long before he damns the unborn or the infant or the child as psalm 8 2 tells us quote from the mouths of babes and sucklings you have established your strength as we read in Psalm 51, 5, 6, For you are my hope, Lord God, my confidence from my youth. I've leaned on you since before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Or consider Isaiah 55, 7, which tells us to let the wicked abandon his way and the unrighteous person his thoughts and return to the Lord. Or Ezekiel 18, or even the numerous proof texts that adherents of total depravity eisegete, as even these refute their own claims. Yes, Scripture presents an ontology diametrically opposed by total depravity. Now, in summation, once again, total depravity is a 16th century bad take on a 5th century invention, which is at odds with the historic Hebrew understanding of the nature of man. It makes claims pertaining to the ontology of man, which are opposed to the teaching of Scripture, resulting in a distorted view of man and sin, denying the power of the gospel, corrupting the incarnation and the redemptive work of Christ, condemning infants and children to hell, and robbing us of both reason and hope. So for these reasons, and many more I don't have time to address, total depravity is not biblical. Thank you. It would be a moralistic fallacy to say your doctrine results in babies uh, going to hell or something like that. In all fairness, so 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 the the claim is is that I'm making a moralistic fallacy. Um, yeah, I mean, it, but the thing is, is I mean, I would turn around and say, well, you've got to argue from scripture that babies go to hell, and I'm going to show you David in. Second uh, Samuel, where he talks about his lost child, um, who he's going to go to be with later because he's been forgiven. I can give you examples of yeah, that uh, parents be- that have hope. So it, it wasn't I wasn't trying to make a moralistic fallacy because I had ammunition to back up the biblical data to the contrary. But I only had 15 minutes, and so I just wanted to hit the the probably the more emotional point of that, just so that it would resonate more with the audience. Yeah. Uh, kind of a sucker punch a little bit. No, I don't know. No, that makes sense. If you have some data to say, uh, the Bible doesn't seem like these babies are going to some sort of burning pit where they're tortured in hell. They might go to paradise, Abraham's bosom, something like that. Yeah. Uh, that that would be a positive argument. But I would, my biggest criticism, I would say, is just the dating of when these things are arising. But well, yeah, I mean, minor. it depends. It depends on it depends on on what standard you're using. And so, for this, I was really trying to use latter Augustinian writings. Um, you know, I was framing it as uh, it's it has its roots in the teachings of Augustine of Hippo, and I, I really did not want to play 
uh, too mean. I still think it would have been a truthful statement, and I could have validated it had I gone to the to the Gnostic origins of this. Well, even but, saying fourth century Augustinian, you said sixth century, right? I thought I said fifth century. Okay. Yeah, like what? 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 In Augustine four eighty nine, I think. Um, I think. Again, I, I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare. Oh, for I, this. I thought. I thought Augustine was four eighty nine. I got to go back and look. Uh, three fifty to four thirty. Four thirty. So I mean, four thirty. That's fifth century. Yeah, yeah, it works. Yeah. See, so I was. I was correct. <laughs> I was. I was correct. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, do you got a back and forth, or what do you do? Do a rebuttal time after this? So yeah, so he has he has his rebuttal, um, and and then I I rebut, and then we have a, a cross exam, and then we have Q and A. Okay, so let's let's see cross exam. We'll skip forward. Have eternal life, and I'll raise him in the last day. So is Christ offering himself that people can have salvation by believing in him? Yes, this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is a, I believe, drawing a parallel between him and uh, the brass serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. Would you say this is a pretty clear presentation of the gospel, at least as it, I mean, pre, pre-resurrection? Yeah, the 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 serpent being raised up as an illusion is interesting because that kind of defeats total depravity. It's like whoever does performs this action becomes saved. So, yeah, um, and, and everyone everyone that was there had the ability to look upon it. And and when nobody was saying that the ability to look upon it was salvific. They were saying that it was it was that act that, that but you know participating in the means that God had created. Mm-hmm. You know, it was everybody has the ability. You didn't merit that. You just have it. God's God's working with you with where you are. Everyone has been bitten by the serpent can look at this thing and be healed. But Dan is saying no, they're seed of the serpent. Um, so we have to have prevenient grace be this, these, the brass serpent that's lifted up, not necessarily the gospel. So it, it, it seemed to me to be moving things around in order to accommodate his doctrine rather than having his doctrine you know, accommodate the text. That's really interesting. Uh, serpents on poles are associated with life and medicine. We, we got the serpent on the pole, that, like the the normal medicine uh, symbol that you'll see on pharmacies mm-hmm. and things like that. So I wonder if there is some sort of magic type element that was common in the culture for that t- type of act. That's uh, maybe something I'll have to go look into, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's a proof text for total depravity. If, if I'm understanding what he said that we kind of skipped a little bit. Here. Well, he was just asking if it was a gospel presentation. And and because he's he's trying to argue that the gospel was veiled, and people needed to have prevenient grace. And I'm saying no, God spoke in Christ spoke in parables, uh, so as to not have them usher him into his kingdom. He had a a mission he was accomplishing, and had they rightly understood him, he, they would have stopped it. Just like the apostles said, you know, had they known, they wouldn't have crucified him. And he's going well. He's going well. Yeah, no, they still would have because they're at enmity. Unless they were proveniently graced, then they would be free to either crucify him or not crucify him. And it's just you're complicating matters with, you know, invented problems and invented solutions, and it just doesn't work. Ad hoc category creation. That's it's that's the name. That's the name of the game. Yep. I mean, I, I think I think the good news is, is pretty simplistic and easy to understand. I, I think that that's. Would you call it coded language? Um, 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, at the time, people did not realize that he was referencing his own crucifixion. I don't, I don't believe this is John 6. No, I don't believe that they were aware of that. Okay, fair enough. But if his immediate audience had trusted in him as Messiah, um, would they have been saved? He hadn't been lifted up yet. So I don't. Yeah, Jesus's ministry was not about himself. And so to believe in Jesus or on Jesus during Jesus's earthly ministry was to believe in his message. And uh, every time someone guessed who Jesus was, he'd be like, don't tell anyone about this. Um, keep this secret. Um, that, that it wasn't part of his public ministry. His ministry was not about himself. No, and, and the whole point of keeping it secret was that the truth sets you free and he wasn't ready for them to be freed yet because he had a mission to accomplish. You know, they could have received it if all they had. to, And it's not that the information in and of itself is salvific, but it gives them something to act upon and, and total inability says they can't act upon it. And so, yeah, just none of this is, none of this is in keeping with, with Dan's doctrine here. Yeah. So I don't, I, Jesus's gospel was that the kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. There's going to be an apocalyptic event. God is going to come back. He's going to sort the wicked and the righteous, punish the wicked, and then bless the righteous. That was the content of his gospel. And to, so to take Jesus's ministry and say, hey, is this this salvific gospel about Jesus being Lord or Jesus being son of God or whatever? I, I don't think that I think that's misunderstanding. Well, it's an anachronistic handling of what it means to be saved. It's an anachronistic handling of 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 uh, basically coming in and saying, well, here's these sets of propositions that if you assent to, you know, he would accuse me of holding a position where knowledge itself is salvific but it seems like he's arguing that assent a to a set of propositions is salvific and um i'm saying no I mean, people can assent to anything they're they're free to accept or reject um that's not the salvific part it's it's in whom we're placing our trust you know are we placing our trust in the serpent uh are we placing ourselves our trust in ourselves are we rebelling are we placing our trust and allegiance in god and it's god who saves but we're free to choose where we're placing that trust and allegiance uh, because total depravity is just not true. Yeah. <laughs> don't, I don't believe that. Um, I think the chronology is out of order here. When, if, if, everyone, if everyone who was in his audience uh, was there when he was crucified and believed in him and his resurrection and his work, they, they'll be saved, yes. Okay, um, going down later in the passage, um, in verse 68, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, so if, if someone believed Christ's words at that time, as they were presented at that time, would they have eternal life? Um, is this coded language? Uh, well, what I'm trying to do is avoid going into, uh, eternal security debates. Um, I think you and I actually agree on conditional security. So I'm, I'm trying to phrase my answer in such a way to answer your question without deviating from the topic. So you're asking me, is this coded language where Peter is saying, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, I don't believe that uh, Peter yet understood the work of Christ as later, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, he actually tried to convince Christ not to be crucified and was rebuked by Jesus himself and saying, get behind me, Satan. So I don't think that Peter had understanding then at that time. Yeah, none of, the, none of these guys had any concept of what a death would mean. Even after Jesus is, rises from the dead, he doesn't explain to them any atonement theories after 40 days of preaching what's their biggest question when's the kingdom coming back god 
uh, we don't we don't even know yet. And so it, it's really weird. Yeah, you use the word anachronistic to anachronistically see Jesus as teaching something that he just wasn't. He wasn't teaching the death, resurrection, uh, salvation through an atoning sacrifice. No, exactly. I mean, it. it you know, we, we get into um, I even bring up atonement theories uh, as the debate progresses. But I mean, yeah, you're right. It's just. We're asking, we're asking the text, we're asking Christ, we're asking the apostles to do things um, contrary to what they did in order to accommodate this doctrine. And I don't think, I don't think that it's, I don't think people are seeing it, not because they're unable, but just due to cognitive dissonance. Right. My answer to Dan Chapo would be yes. Jesus's ministry would, if you believe his teachings, and his teachings was apocalyptic in nature then you would have salvation. And that's defined as not being rounded up and killed during the apocalypse. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, so let's go to verse 44. No one can say it can come to me unless the father who sends me draws him. Okay. So can anyone believe in Jesus unless the father draws him? No. Okay, good. All right. And so I, I think that's, it is the father's drawing. I think the John passage is a hyperbole and generalization. And so uh, really, how are you going to believe in Jesus unless you go see him preach and teach? It'd probably be word of mouth or something like that. So I, I don't think the claim is that if you learn from about Jesus through word of mouth, then you can't be saved. You have to go see him and learn directly from him to be saved. I don't think that's what the John passage is about. And I, I don't think it's about a metaphysical drawing either. So I think it's a generalization. I think it was about Jesus's real-time ministry at that time, uh, his, the immediate context of what he's preaching and teaching. And we can't, we can't treat it as a metaphysical principle. Well, you've got, you've got several different interpretations. You could say that drawing means wooed, that we we see the love of God on display, and that 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 calls us forward, almost like uh, like a fish seeing the worm on the hook. You know, like we we're drawn to the love of God on display, and we love Him in response. That could be drawing. It could also be understood that um, that uh, this is referring to uh, the faithful in God at that time who were trusting in the Father, and because they were faithful and trusting in the Father. They would be taught of the Son and given over to the Son because all dominion and authority was given over to the Son. Um, there's there's several different ways that could this passage could be interpreted and understood that are completely harmonized with the text that don't require or necessitate total inability. But Dan is Dan is adamant that total inability is the case, and you can't do anything unless you're drawn. But you'll you'll see how I, I handle this. I, I don't know if I handled it as as good as I could have. You know, debates. There's pressure on, and there's right. You, know, you, you come back and you're like, man, there's four different ways I could have answered that. Uh, you know, did I choose the right one? Yeah, you just learn through experience. It's just like something yeah. you have to go through a few times. So if anyone's getting into debating, do some smaller debates first, in person debating. And where do you meet people to debate rather than, I guess, a church small group or college or something like that? That's where it's like, 
once you get old, it's like, where do you find real people? How, how do you find friends? <laughs> oh, man, I tell you, I was talking with a, a guy today about that very same thing. I was like, where do you find genuine, likable, relatable people that aren't stupid? You know, like, where do you find them? Uh, I find them debating theology. Um, you know, I find them online, uh, but, but it is hard to find them in your local local area. Right. You have to maybe, maybe like a Bible study or something, but my problem is I'm bound to just get kicked out of and blacklisted from more than just a Bible study. If I start attending these Bible studies. Oh no, that's what I was, that's what I was saying. I said, I've got black sheep. I've got black sheep theology. I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I can agree in part with Anabaptists. I can agree in part with Eastern Orthodox, depending on what we're talking about. I can agree with reformed or, or, or Catholics, but you know, the end result is I offend everyone equally. And, uh, you know, so Craigslist. Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to create a Craigslist ad, like a uh, single white male seeking debate partner. <laughs> Nothing sexual. That's like, it. Hold. Yeah. Yeah. And people be like, this guy's trying to rape me. <laughs> No, that's that's Calvinist regeneration. <laughs> like the more you say it's it's not sexual, people will be like, it's definitely sexual. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. Me think thou dost protest too much. Prevenient to our coming to Christ. Uh, the father's drawing. Um... Oh no, David writes he got chased out by a screaming pastor once. Oh no. Uh, hopefully you weren't being purposely caustic and hopefully it was just intellectually based. Oh man. I've never, I've never had that. I've never had that. <laughs> screamed at me, chased, I mean, chased and screamed at, well, you didn't grow up in my house. I got chased and screamed at a lot. I got, I had an older sister. You're, you're asking about means, I believe. Are you asking about the means of the drawing? Because you're, you're, assuming, you're assuming an enabling prevenient. Grade. Are you trying to talk? Me? No, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, that's just uh, you on the on the video trying to talk, I guess. <laughs> Which is accompanying the gospel, accompanying uh, all of that. I'm just I'm just asking: Is does the drawing precede the coming? Is it first? Is it before the coming? Sure. I mean, you can't respond to the gospel unless there's somebody preaching it, and they can't hear it unless somebody is sent. So, I would I would appeal to that passage. Okay. So, is it your contention that the father's drawing is equivalent to preaching the gospel? It's one of many ways that he does it, but yes, we have this. Do you go over a Christ, his uh, parable about election and how many are called and few are chosen? Does that come up? No. Um, again, perhaps if I'd prepared a little bit more, uh, I would have had that at hand. Um, I was really just thinking very narrowly uh, with laser precision on total depravity, total inability. I wasn't oh, yeah. thinking upon a, election and prevenient grace and irresistible grace. And, you know, did, did uh, Jacobus Arminius, when he said regeneration, did he really mean enabling grace or did he mean Calvinist regenerate? Like this debate went into some really weird places. And um, I think I was just too focused on the debate topic. That That's what I always try to ask Calvinists about. I, I, I say try to, because Anytime I do, I don't really get a good response. I say, hey, hey, Jesus explained how this election things works, this, this, this calling. 
at where a bunch of people are called and they don't respond right. So he calls a bunch of different people and then they respond, but half of them don't respond in the correct way. And he only picks the people who respond in the correct way. And many are called, fewer chosen. And they they don't have a response because that kind of violates this irresistible calling. <laughs> it does. It does. But see, but but see, Dan is Dan is Arminian, and so he's going to he's going to be a he's going to have a, a position. I I don't mean this derogatory, but his position's a little bit more slippery to nail down than your typical Calvinist because he'll say, "Yeah, you're totally unable, but you're also able because of provenient grace." And so it, it's really having your cake and eating it too. And you're going, well, hold on. I'm not talking about provenient grace. I'm talking about the inability. Like, let's, let's stay on the topic. You know, like, where is that in the text? Scriptures, we have uh, him sending uh, missionaries and ambassadors. The apostle said it was as if God was making his appeal to you through us to be you reconciled. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, God uses many different things, but the gospel is that. Travis writes, I've been shunned for trying to engage on the subject, watching a pastor go from friendly to avoiding me after one conversation was wild. So the temperament of people who become pastors are people who tend to see themselves as the authority figure. And so it tends to be, in my experience, the case that when you interact with a pastor on something that you feel you might know more than him, they can perceive this and they take it as a personal offense. And now you're a danger to the church because you're undermining authority. You're and then they use terms like, Oh, you're unteachable or something like that. So oh, 100% agree with that. 100% agree with that. Like I can't say it's true of every person in that, that position or role, but there does tend to be a particular type that's attracted to it. And when you come in and you go, Hey, I disagree. And here's a good reason why, or even a bad reason why, um, if they feel intimidated, often they'll project that insecurity onto you. And instead of saying, hey, no, let's sit down, iron, sharpen iron, let's work this out. You know, oh, that's a good point. You know, oh, well, have you considered like, no, 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 no. You do not challenge my authority. I'm the head of the, the church. And uh, if you know, fall in line or fall out. Right. You're never going to sit down with a pastor unless you don't go to his church and be treated like some sort of equal. Yeah. They're, they're always going to assume you're my flock. Yeah, we could have the conversation, but after the conversation's done, you need to be agreeing with me. Yeah, it 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 is a it's a sense in which, you know, if if you disagree with the pastor, then why are you here? You know, why are why are you here? You're undermining my authority. I feel insecure and inadequate with you in the in the pulpit or in the, in the pew, you know, with me up here preaching. I surely if you disagree with me on these two things, you disagree with me on everything. And you're just here to cause division, and and, and I, I don't want you here. Interacting with a pastor, this is how you interact with a pastor. That, that was a good sermon today. Uh, shake their hand. It's like, okay, I'll see you later. <laughs> that That's it. And then and then go to your men's group. Go to your friends. You know. Yeah, go yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. The power. Okay. So, um, oh man, I, okay. So, a couple things. So, draw. Let's, let's just focus on the word draw then. Um, let me give you an example. So, um, let's say... Let's give two examples. So the tow truck, these are physical drawing, not mental drawing, but let's let's look, let's start with the physical first. So if the tow truck, if the car is in neutral and the tow, the tow truck draws it, it's moving the car. But if the car is in park, then the tow truck, is the tow truck still drawing the car if the car isn't moving? 
technically yes but it's not not the common word we would probably switch it to drag but within within the technical definition of draw that the correct answer would be yes yeah i mean you'll see you'll see my answer we have a tow truck hooked up to a car yeah but the, let's say okay so two examples in one case the car is in neutral and the, and the tow truck starts pulling on it and it moves so that's definitely a drawing right i think hopefully we would agree there so the question is in the second case if the tow truck is hooked up to the car but the car is in park and it's not moving is the tow truck drawing the car i think if i understand your analogy correctly i would say yes um, I, I hope so, I understand your analogy correctly, but yes, I mean, it, the tow truck is still acting upon the, the parked car. Is that, is that the point you're trying to make? The point, yeah, the point I'm trying to make is that usually, actually not usually, always drawing implies movement of the thing drawn. That's the point I'm trying to make. So well, no, I mean, if, if, if the car is, if the car is parked and the tow truck is acting upon it to pull it, so it's, it's still being drawn, but, uh, it's resisting that drawing. So is it, isn't that the is, Armenian is it, position it, though, Dan, is so, that, that that can be resisted? Well, I mean, I can answer questions on your side, but I say yes, it can it can resist. Yeah, sure, we can resist. Attempts to draw can be resisted, but not actual drawing. Actual drawing in, in always implies movement. It's it, otherwise the word is inappropriate. The the tow truck, I would so the tow truck pulls on the car, but it doesn't draw the car unless there's actual movement. Okay, well, I, mean, um, I, think, I think Helco, I think Helco is not only just uh, drawing or dragging, as some people say, but it's all. Is the argument that a tow truck can't drag a car if the car's put has its brakes on? He seems to be arguing for for irresistible grace here. That even if you're stubborn and parked, like you're getting dragged. Well, okay. that that's not that's not prevenient grace anymore. That's enabling you to come. That is irresistible grace. That's dragging you. And so here he's completely shifted his argument from total depravity from an Arminian position of enabling grace to total depravity from a Calvinist irresistible grace position. And this sidestep while still on topic for the debate and within his arsenal to use, because the debate is total depravity, not the cure. We're now focusing on the cure from a Calvinist position articulated by an Arminian. And that threw me for a loop. And I was like, what are, what are we doing here? Uh, GMW says, my biggest struggle is finding a church not soiled with Augustinianism. Any advice? Yeah, compromise. Pick the best that's, one that's in your local that's area. It. That's it. That's it. Or or you're going to have to convert to uh, some Eastern variant uh, that, that has a strong uh, anti-Augustinian current. Yeah, if you're a single male, just pick the church with the best looking ladies. Yeah, that, that's my advice. That, that is my actual legitimate advice. If you got yeah, young well, boys, grab a church with young ladies. Go go to uh, a, a large church with uh, a large uh, female population where they're highly educated, um, and you're, they outnumber the men, you know, ten to one. And you're going to find someone with a good career, good head on their shoulders, probably ready to settle down and start a family. You know, so yeah, it's yeah, good advice. Hopefully. hopefully, also to woo. Um, and, and no, so no, 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 I, well, I disagree. Woo. So woo is like a, trying to win over a woman's affections, let's say. Okay. So does every time someone tries to win over a woman's affection, does he actually win over her affection? Yeah. If, if Jesus's point is uh, rhetorical and he's trying to insult these guys, he's not going to say God woos these people. He's going to say, yeah, God pulls these people and you're not one of them. 
And so you're, you should feel bad. I, I think that's, I think that's actually what's happening. Uh Oh, GMW says I married and my wife is listening with me. LOL. Okay. If you got boys, then go to the church with the young girls and then they could interact. <laughs> Dude, if you're, if you're if you're married if you're married then uh, yeah you need to consult with your wife and find a good church that you both agree on and you don't want that to be a source of division so uh, not only are you going to have to find a church that you can compromise on doctrine but that you and your wife can both uh, agree that isn't going to be a, a problem for the marriage. David says I don't want to be wooed. Oh okay, I guess. <laughs> You and I are very successful in that, I'm sure. But I think the average person watching would say, no, they don't have our track record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So um, that's why woo is not a synonym for draw. Because woo does not always imply movement or in the thing wooed. So that's why woo is not a synonym for draw. I, I um, agree. I agree. But I think what we're doing is we're, instead of looking at the Greek uh, word for helco, which is what we're discussing, what does that mean in the author's intent? We're taking an English translation and then anachronistically applying it back with a singular definition. Yeah, and I, I'm fine that it means dragged. I, I don't, I don't think that supports his position and not mine. No, and and and, and then as I said, there's other interpretations where you can come in and say, yeah, it, it does mean to be given or to 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 use that sort of definition that that uh, Dan is using, but it doesn't require total inability. Um, you know, this, this, we could easily say, just like Lydia, she was a worshiper of God. She was taught of God and her heart was open and she was given over to the son. But that, that doesn't mean what Dan needs it to mean in order for his doctrine to stand. Well, okay. So can you find any examples in uh, Greek where the word helco is used and there's not if it's a physical sense movement of the object, and if it's in a mental sense, a uh, change in mental dis disposition. Are there any examples of Helco that you can provide like that? Because I don't actually, I know there's not any, but go, but go ahead. You're asking me if I can provide an example of Helco where it's it's being used as, as woo? No, what I'm saying is, are there any examples of Helco where if it's physical, the object isn't moving, the object being Helcode isn't actually moving, or if it's mental, that the mind isn't changing. Can you find either of those? I contend you will not be able to because I've looked for them and they don't exist. But yeah, if I mean, you can I, find one, I'll, I'd love to hear it. No, I'll, I'll concede that. I mean, I, if you want to, if you want to allot me fifteen minutes to go on a search, I'd be happy to use your time. But uh, I don't have anything ready but on the hand. Okay, that, no, that's okay. That's uh, that's fair enough. All right. Um, and let's, and, see, let's see. And let's go to Chris. Um, first. Yeah. Like like I said, I think earlier on in this review. Um, Reformed sources are saying that it means wooed, and they're saying it means drag. And my point in bringing this up was that they can't agree. And so he's like, well, okay, but they're wrong and you're wrong. And uh, and I'm like, well, my, my point isn't that, you know, I can go to the lexicon and come up with, you know, an argument defending their position. My, my argument is that y'all, your camp isn't in agreement on this, and that negates and undermines your own claims. And there's these other interpretations where that could uh, be understood that don't require total inability. And, uh, and so, you know, I think it was, I think this is probably his best moment in the debate was saying, you know, that, that retort, well, where's the lexicon? Give that to, I think I got to give Dan props for that. That was a very sharp um, response, but I don't think ultimately it matters. Yeah. I would have just granted him the point and say, yeah, that doesn't uh, 
you mean that my position is wrong and yours is correct. Uh, yes, I grant the point that even within the context that Jesus was making a general statement that the people who are drawn are the ones that are saved. I would have given them that. Yeah, yeah. And, and in retrospect, you know, I should have been a little bit more aggressive and just go, yeah, I'll concede the point. Um, I was again. I have I have a tendency to be hyper focused on a particular line of argumentation, sometimes to the detriment. I get those blinders on, and I'm like, well, you know, Spurgeon said it meant wooed. Like, why are, why are you upset with me? Like, that's that's a a, a well received understanding. Like, I, I'm not saying that I agree with Spurgeon, but I'm saying that's a that's a defeater to your assist your insistence, right? And I should have just conceded the point and moved on. Yeah, um, that's one thing in debates that I got. Maybe it's a learned skill. Like sometimes, even if you don't agree with a point someone's making, concede it for the sake of the debate because it's it doesn't. Maybe maybe the point's irrelevant to everything at hand, and so there's no there's no trouble in conceding it. And yeah, and have, you'll, you'll hear you'll hear. I think I just did. I just said, well, no, I'll I'll concede that. Like, okay, I'll give that to you. Like, I'll yeah. take your word for it. First Corinthians uh, twelve passage. Um, so first Corinthians 12. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he's wrong. Maybe I'd, I'd have to do the word search. It says, um, um, no one can say Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What is the in of in the Holy Spirit mean? What, when we focus on the word in, what does that mean? Twelve three, I believe it was. Yes. Uh, okay, so in the Greek, it's in, in, in English, sometimes it's by. Um, How do you take it? Do you take do you take it of either as either as location or in the power of? I would, I would say in, uh, probably with. Right, right, okay. Um, and do we need this to be able to say that Jesus is Lord? No. Do we need it to mean not just mouth the words, not be lying, but actually believe what we're saying, that Jesus is Lord. Do we need... Again, it's like people read the Bible and they think it's a manual of metaphys metaphysics. I I don't think the Bible talks metaphysics. It talks in generalities. It talks in uh, practicality. And so to have a debate where you're looking at a text very specifically, reading it very woodenly and saying this is a metaphysical formula in the ether i i i just i th i think uh, categorically it's an incorrect way to read the text well and it, it, it i think it makes for a very lousy debate too because we're we're saying what does the greek word en mean and what can we draw and <laughs> like there's, infer there's a from this and then have these wide sweeping entailments to where now all of a sudden you know Babies are created under God's wrath, and you can't believe the gospel. And it's like, well, I, I think I think we're missing the forest for the trees here. Yeah. So there's there's plenty of people who say Jesus is Lord, and then they're like false teachers. And uh, I I, th I think there's examples in the Bible. I don't have one offhand, but I don't think it's it's a hard and fast rule he's giving here. No, I mean you had you had demons that confessed Jesus was Lord. You had soothsayers that were possessed of evil spirits coming behind Paul and saying, you know, that, that, that he was Lord. You had, um, 
I think I even quote John Chrysostom here saying, look, at the time this was written, there weren't catechumens. You know, the church during uh, Chrysostom's time believed that the uh, baptism conferred the Holy Spirit. And he's like, well, what do we do with uh, catechumens? Do we, you know, they're confessing Jesus Lord and they mean it, but they haven't been baptized and given the Holy Spirit yet. So what do we do with those? So it's like there's a lot of defeaters for for Dan's interpretation here. Um, and and I, I think, you know, wasting time on this Greek word. I mean, if that's the way he wants to focus the debate, you know, I'm going to let him do that. Yeah, GMW says, I feel like this is an exegetical fallacy. Yeah, we're reading letters, letters with practical advice. He's not, nobody cares about the metaphysics behind it all. They all care about practical functioning in the real world. That's it. To be in the power of the Holy Spirit, to believe that Jesus is Lord. Uh, to believe it, no, because the demons and the soothsayers did as well, and they knew it, and they professed it. But I think to not just believe it, but to trust in it, um, I think there's a distinction there. There you did. You did, you did it. <laughs> Good. But as I noted in my re response, John Chrysostom said that, um, that that was not even addressing the conditions that we find ourselves in during Chrysostom's time, let alone our time today, because it failed to address like even catechumens who were confessing, but they haven't fully entered into the church at that time. So um, I think that the historical interpretation of that doesn't fit that argument. Wait, so just to make sure I understood your point on the end, are you to actually trust in Christ, do we need to be in the Holy Spirit, meaning in the power of the Holy Spirit or in the location of being inside the Holy Spirit? Um, sorry, I'm wanting to look at this here and just make sure that I understand. Yeah, just never base your doctrine off of a certain use of a preposition. It, it's They're good for exploring possibilities, but they're not going to give you a de facto answer. Yeah, there's nothing in the word that that entails total inability. And this was, you know, it's like, well, Dan, this is where you're wanting to go. Let me give you, you know, my best, you know, take at this. I want to be accurate with the text. So while he's asking me this, I've got the NASB, I've got the ESV, I've got the KJV. Then I've also got the uh, the interlinear with the Greek pulled up, and I have several references from church fathers that I've linked to that particular passage. And I'm looking and trying to go, okay, well, you know, how can I answer this without, um, you know, putting my foot in my mouth, so to speak? Exactly your question. Therefore, I make it known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, uh, with the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Um, and you're asking me if, if we have to have an indwelling Holy Spirit to, to say that, I, I think. Or be that, in the Holy Spirit, in the power of it, or, okay, let me, I'll rephrase it one more time. So we're going to set aside um, false professions, hypocritical professions, all that stuff. We'll set aside, and we'll talk about real, true trust in Christ, and we'll talk about not the, the uh, demons, um, but actual trust, because the demons aren't actually trusting in Christ for their, as their Savior. Yeah. So people that are actually trusting in Christ in their heart, okay. Do they need to be in the Holy Spirit and by in, meaning in the power of the Holy Spirit or um, in the location of the Holy Spirit, meaning either in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm okay with that, or in the location of the Holy Spirit, meaning inside the Holy Spirit. Do they need one of those two things to be able to truly, legitimately trust in Christ for salvation? They can recognize Jesus is Lord and their need for him prior to uh, 
accepting the, the gospel and then accepting the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation, they can then declare that Jesus is Lord for them. So I think that they can recognize their need. They can hear the gospel, can respond to it, then in belief be converted and then declare it having trusted in it. Is part of coming to faith. So I, I understand your point that, okay, so after someone comes to faith, they can publicly profess their faith. Maybe in baptism is a good way you publicly profess your faith, or maybe you go before the church, whatever. So set that aside, mm -hmm. internally within your heart, is part of believing the gospel, believing in your own heart, basically telling yourself, Jesus is Lord. Is that part of the gospel? Do we need to believe that? To be, to have that true trust in Christ, don't we need to tell ourselves, Jesus is Lord? Yeah, we, we have to believe that Jesus is, is Lord, yes. Is your position that you can say it in your heart that Jesus is Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit, but to confess it. All right. So looking at this, I just did a quick search on uh, the Greek word and it's like uh, Mary's found with child. That means it, it's just with. So she's found with child. It, that uses N. And that's, that's the way that I was using it here. I don't know if I've said this yet or not, but I, I said, no, I see it as with. Um, it's an allegiance thing. It, 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 you're doing this uh, in cooperation with, you're doing this uh, in, in um, tandem with, uh, you know, in union with, I mean, there's with, I think is, is, is just a valid of a interpretation as by. Yeah. Here's Matthew three, nine and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham, our father within yourselves. That's just an, it's um, uh, it, it's just prepositions is not a good argument. Uh, uh, preposition, the, the best way to use prepositions as an argument is to explore the possibilities. It says uh, before the foundation of the world. Well, does it actually say that or is it say uh, apo, which is probably better translated as sense. And so a perfectly valid and probably better translation is since the foundation of the world something like that. That's, that's, that's a better type of argument as a response to somebody's proof text, which insists on very specific meanings of their prepositional phrase. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically you're, you're coming in and you're saying, I'm insisting that you in, interpret E in, in this precise way. And then I'm insisting that you draw inferences from that to unpack all of these presuppositional claims that I'm making. And I think that that's just a, a bad way to go around it. Mm -hmm. externally we need the power of the holy spirit is that what you're saying can can one person believe it in their heart without the spirit and then they yeah. need the spirit in order to confess it um I, I don't know i think i think we're getting so deep into the weeds that i'm I'm getting a little lost here dan i apologize i will confess my own inability to track that um okay i mean another enough. cup of coffee look at, I'm gonna... look at you being all humble <laughs> Dude, I am I am anything. I am anything if not humble. Yeah. I'm the most humble man there ever was. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, uh traditional Christians be like, Moses wrote this about himself. We're like, I don't know if I maybe not. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all it's all good. So okay, so um let's uh let's go on to the next passage. Okay, let's talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Do we need the conviction of the Holy Spirit? to be able to believe the gospel? Uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. I think the question is the means. Okay, so is it your contention that the means by which the Holy Spirit at least can be, at times, limited to only the inspiration of Scripture or, you know, 
Holy Spirit filled preachers. Is that is that your position that God, the Holy Spirit convict just by inspiring Scripture and just by um, uh, filling preachers with the courage to preach the gospel, and that's that satisfies all that the Holy Spirit is doing in convicting. At least sometimes that's all he needs. Yeah, I, to do. I think that sometimes all the person needs is to to hear the truth, and the truth will set them free. Sometimes uh, the natural revelation and acting upon the thumbprint of God on their their uh, heart will will work. Uh, God uses a, a lot of different things. Okay, so let's go to John fourteen seventeen. John 14, 17 says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there's three interesting parts. So we can talk about each of them in turn. Let's start with the easy one. Um, the last one is the Holy Spirit will be in you. Do you agree that this means for, especially for New Testament believers that we possess the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit is in us? Do you, do you agree with that? Um, I'd say not necessarily, but probably. Well, you're, 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 yeah, we'll, we'll see how I handle this. <laughs> that we are um, aligned with the Holy Spirit, that we are um, in, in unity with the Holy Spirit. Is that, is that what you're asking me? Yes. Well, he, well he, that he is in us. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is, is, indwells us? Yes. It, I mean, it says uh, he remains with you and will be in you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about the, the first use. Um, so the, the, the middle one. So, so he says, uh, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, what about this? He dwells with you. So this is before they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's before the Holy Spirit is in them. But does what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to dwell with somebody? Well, I think we could look at. I'd say physical location. Uh, He's a roommate. Well, yeah, I, I would. I, I would like, like uh, during the Exodus, God says, "You guys are so wicked that if I went with you, I would be tempted to just kill all you people." And Moses like, uh, God says, I'm going to send an angel with you instead. And then Moses says, please, God, don't do that. You come with us instead. Leave the angel. God's like, okay, I'll do it. And so there is some sort of locational aspect precedent. That, so there might be a locational aspect to this uh, this verse here. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think at this point I'm this is where I bring up uh, King Saul and David playing uh, to note a, a distinction between uh, the Holy Spirit being with and coming upon and versus indwelling. Yeah, that might be too te more technical than the verse intends to be. Perhaps, yeah. Get like an Old Testament example of the Holy Spirit soothing the the wild mind of Saul through the utilization of the songs that David played. It was the instrument um, that the Holy Spirit used to soothe him. It was with him. Um, and then the spirit would depart because of judgment. Um, so we could use that as an example of it, an external with. Um, we could also look at other examples where it's an indwelling with. It kind of depends on the context. Okay. All right. So I, But I think I generally agree with your point. Okay. So now let's back up to probably the point of convention. So um, the beginning of verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. What does it mean that the world can't receive the Holy Spirit? Uh, I believe it's talking about the the world system, the the fallen world. It's not um, making an ontological claim about uh, every human being. Yeah, so I think I've done searches on this before, this word, and people can't do this or can't do that. And it just means that they just, they don't. And so you know, often, it, rather than some sort of physical inability. So it, it is it is a mistake to take words and insist on very strong meanings. Like, 
like, let's say you're in a class and you say, can I go to the bathroom? Yes, you have the ability to go to the bathroom and it's only a teacher who's being pedantic, like, oh, yes, you can, but may you go to the bathroom, something like that. Right, right. That's, that's, it's, it's not how language works. And so if you just look up that word and see how it's used generally, you're going to find exceptions to what he's insisting that this means. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the the world cannot do this, right? Well, would you consider Pilate part of the world? Well, they would not have crucified Jesus if they'd known. So why can they not do it? Is it due to an innate ontological inability or just a lack of understanding who Christ is and what he'd come to accomplish? You know, so it's 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 about those that are caught up in that world system, not necessarily an, an ontological inability. But I believe it's talking about the system, the secular system, the unbelieving world, the the world that is um, the, the powers of the adversary, um, uh, Rome. Um, there's a lot of ways that that could be understood. So, or do you mean those as principles in the abstract, or people that are basically under the in that domain? Basically, like the end. You mean the, the individual people in there, like those individual people? can't receive the spirit or, or what is that? I guess, do, do you abstract that all the way or do you get down to applying it when you apply it? When the rubber hits the road, it's the individual people that are under the world system that uh, can't receive the spirit. Yeah, I mean, we could we could parallel that over to 1 Corinthians 2, 14. And I would say that it's talking about uh, if, that, if there's a true connection there, it would be the animalistic person who's given themselves over to gratifying their appetites, um, that that person is uh, essentially um, the, the animalish soul, the psychikos, um, they've set their mind on gratifying their appetite and their groin, you know, that they're very much about the immediate pleasure. Um, and so they, they cannot receive it because they haven't set their mind on, on that. Okay. Um, the, again, there's, there's some people that can't receive the spirit. Are you saying it's the people that kind of, the people that reject the spirit are the ones that can't receive the spirit? No. Um, so, so uh, let's let's say um, um, I hate analogies, uh, and they're going to fail. You have you have a you have a drug user, right? Um, they set their mind on getting high, so they that's their primary. That's like that's a sense of idolatry. They're worshiping the high. They set their mind on the high, that gratification. So therefore, self restraint, self discipline. They cannot hold down a job. Um, it's not that they were created such. It's that they. What verse references are we going over right now? <laughs> I think we're still talking about the Greek preposition in. <laughs> no, we're, we're talking about people can no. or cannot. <laughs> yeah, I'm joking. I'm joking. It, it's about the, you know, uh, the world cannot understand. Right. What, and, what's the uh, verse yeah. reference? I don't recall at this point. I, oh, I don't, yeah. We've got to, have to I, go back and look. I wish like the host had like a Bible app that he could just slap up whatever they're talking about. But oh, yeah. yeah. If we could have like on the screen, the verses yeah. and stuff, that'd be great reaped a nature in bondage to such by bad choices. So I think that it's um, more of an in, in indication of, of them reaping what they've done. But even then, the prodigal did the same. And in the pig pen, I mean, he didn't have a syringe in his arm, but the, in the pig pen, he came to his senses because his suffering was such that um, he wanted to come back home. So I think even then, we can have a breakthrough where we just come to the end of ourselves and we go, this is, this is not working. That's the beauty yeah. of pain and, and all of that that God gave us out of his mercy. Let me ask you about, so let's go one from chapter four to chapter 15. 
So in chapter 15, in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, he uh, is he that will bear much fruit. And then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that last clause mean? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, it means you can't brush your teeth unless you're a Christian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's all encompassing, right? There's, well, like for, for the way I think I take it is, is um, it talks about, you know, in whom you live and move and have your being. Um, like he's the life-giving spirit. He's the one who sustains us. Um, you know, it's his mercy and grace that allows us to freely choose these things. But I don't hold it in the same sense that, that Dan does, obviously. Right. So if can do nothing, uh, if I, I do a little search on those words, I think I'll probably find some interesting results that don't quite align with what he needs the words to mean. Oh, no doubt. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, he is he's the life-giving spirit. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the tree of life. He is... Um, the way, the truth, the life, he's the standard. Um, so, you know, nothing of nothing of, of worth or merit apart from truth and life. So uh, can unbelievers do good? I don't think that's the context that it's talking about here in a generic sense. Of How about, uh, uh, here's here's a verse using the phrase, Mark 6, 5, and he could could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. So Jesus has an instant in which he can't do anything, right? Does that mean he's like physically unable to do it? Maybe, maybe that might be a position to take that um, because certain cities were wicked or rejected Jesus, he was just physically unable to do miracles there. Mm. That might mean what Mark six, five is, but I don't think Dan Chapman takes that position. No, I don't either. Of doing good. Uh, for even you who are accustomed to doing evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, the Bible recognizes those are good gifts. Um, so yes, they're accustomed to doing evil, but they're capable of doing good. But this is talking about, I believe, in, in a spiritual sense of of um, the deeper right, things right. of God. Yeah. Yeah. So with so your is it your position that apart from union with Christ, um, unbelievers can can do good things? Uh, I would I would equivocate on what you mean by unbeliever because generally that's a willful rebellion and refusal to believe. Um, Non-believers, you know, let's say their conflicting thoughts excuse them. Um, they they can do they can do good things. Yeah, if the Bible talks in generalities, yeah, absolutely, the text is compatible with unbelievers being able to do good things. So it's it's only if you're trying to treat these texts as some sort of absolute. That you think the text is incompatible with that, but we have plenty of examples in the Bible of the Bible using fairly absolute language, but then we find out there's exceptions. It doesn't actually encompass right. It, it's it's all contextual, and 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 that's the problem with this doctrine is that it has no regard for the context of the proof text that it's ripping out. There's there's uh, annihilations, complete annihilations of people groups that reappear within the Bible um, because language just. It doesn't work with as hard and fast rules. Oh, dude! If I if I play if I play five crowns, a card game, with my nine year old daughters, I annihilate them, and then we play another round. <laughs> and then you annihilate them again. You just torture your poor children. But my point is, is that I've annihilated them. I've utterly destroyed them. You know, and and um, 
you know, that's the way that language works. And uh, often, you know, they'll, they'll focus on a preposition without realizing the way that language is, is used to convey ideas. Yeah, I, I should just start making big lists of uh, hyperbole and generalizations as used in the Bible. Things are just real easy to show. But uh, it, it it's used all the time. So if if you're depending on being no exceptions to whatever verse you're using, it's probably not a good theological strategy for trying to get to the root meaning of whatever is happening in the passage. Yeah. Things they haven't willfully chosen disbelief. Um, but if you've committed yourself to disbelief, then that's the mindset. And now you're back in that world system and unable to do so. Oh, what, one, one example I always use is like, they're like, all have sinned. I said, oh, did Jesus sin? And then you get the hugest fit. They'll be like, rah, 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 rah. That Jesus doesn't count for this reason. This reason. The, the all doesn't. They get real mad. Rather than saying, yep, that, that is a generality. It's hyperbole. Rather than saying that, you'll get paragraphs of text explaining why Jesus is the exception and it doesn't count for meaning that there's exceptions for that general rule. No, it's, it's, it is funny. It is funny. Let's, uh, let's, let's change the passages again. So second Corinthians uh, four, um, second Corinthians four and verses three through six. So second Corinthians four, three through six, I'll just read it. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Donnie. Uh, do we have time for one more question or? Yes, we have uh, 35 seconds. So you've got time for one more question, Dan. Sure. Okay. So in second Corinthians four, three through six, what does it mean that Satan is veiling us from the gospel and that um, our minds are blinded? We can't see the light of the gospel. And then God who said, let uh, light shine out of the darkness has shown into our hearts. So the solution to the veiling is God who ex nihilo shined light to create the world has shown into our hearts. What does that passage mean? Um, well, the world is, uh, in this case, the God of this world has, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I would say that uh, there's a parallel there in that Psalm 14 passage that I mentioned previously, uh, where it's the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is, um, an unbelieving, I believe this is a willful. Yeah. Like Satan's not omniscient is Satan's not everywhere. He's, he's not, uh, omnipotent. He doesn't control everything. It's like, what kind of power do these people think Satan has that he could put like, like every single person on earth, he can directly affect. He has that reach and power rather than through proxies. It's, it's weird. It's like, Satan, Satan's not like an opposite God, like a anti-God that has all his powers in negative. Well, that would be more of like a dualistic, uh, you know, cosmology. And, and um, you know, there is a, a word that is well known for that that starts with a silent G. <laughs> Nat. That's it. GIF. An, <clears throat> our graphical interface file. No, I don't know. But... Yeah, it's 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 kind of weird. Uh, Satan does his acts through proxies because he's just he's just a person. He, he's just uh, he's he's an angel, so he has power. He has ability. Well, then you also look at the Old Testament concepts of of the Satan, which would be more of an equivalent of even the Yetzer Hara, which is our quote unquote evil inclination, our appetites. Um, you know, there was the, the Old Testament and its understanding of the Satan was all over the place. Um, they, they didn't have a clear 
uh, view of of uh, a fallen angel as the Satan. They had a, a, an office that was an accuser within the angelic hosts or the divine council. You had um, that that um, uh, Yetzer Hara within yourself that would be considered a, a Satan. Um, you know, so, but again, these these are nuanced positions that that don't do well for this sort of debate because he has to have a particular framework in order for this system to work. So it has to be insisted upon. You can't have those sort of uh, nuanced conversations. Right. Like the verse that he read wouldn't apply like a thousand years before the time the verse was written. It, it just, it applies now because conditions are different. It's not a total depravity from some sort of fall in the garden. But we'll listen to you answer to this, and then we'll wrap up because we're almost at about three hours, Mister. I'm not coming on because I. Oh, I wasn't going to come on, man. It's past my bedtime. I'm an old man, and <laughs> and I saw you on here. I go. I'll just pop on for five minutes, and then, yeah, and then five I get minutes. Sucked in. Yeah. yeah, like three hours later. Okay, we'll, we'll oh listen God. to you wrap this question up, and then then we'll then we'll cut off here. Uh, Sins in which they've chosen disbelief, and um, the God of this world is uh, taking them further down that. Thank you. Okay, very good, gentlemen. Great first 25 minutes of crossing. Okay, so um, I think Dan Chapa, th this is our summation, I think he could have done better in consolidating his opening statement to be more concise, to make a very specific targeted point, and then used his remaining time to hopefully back up that point. Giving such a broad overview uh, with with complicated reasoning probably did him a disservice because people probably tuned out and then then it probably gets in their mind that this is just too complicated to be realistic it, it doesn't seem like a realistic system because there's too much moving parts involved that have to work together and if any falls then the whole system falls and so if my advice for him would be to consolidate his opening statement focused on single issues and push those issues as hard as you can with all your evidence in time. Well, I will save my criticism of Dan for um, maybe a conversation with Dan. I, I, I enjoyed my, my debate with him, um, but I'm anxious to hear your criticism of me because uh, I know I'm not perfect. I'm 99.9% I'm .9 of the way there, but I, I do need that help to, to reach the threshold. I'd put pu push that date back down a little bit that uh, you keep giving. <laughs> so you think maybe second or third century? Uh, I, I would, I would say so. Uh, yeah. This is, this is, there, there's a lot of precedents. If you go read all the Gnostic works. If you go to earlychristianwritings.com and they just, it'll, it'll take you three hours. You could probably read through all existing Gnostic works for the first two, three centuries, you'll get a good idea of what kind of stuff is floating around. But my criticism of you is, um, it, more you, chest hair. I mean, more chest hair, leisure suit, maybe, and maybe do some squats. And, uh, while, while, while he's up, you could be in the background working out. Maybe. They'll <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I would say try not to get sidetracked for things that are irrelevant to the debate topic. Be more willing to grant points for sake of just moving the conversation on and refocusing the debate. A lot, a lot of times 
when you're interacting with someone and maybe you're debating one topic and they might make a point that you don't disagree with on another topic, you're like, Ooh, I could respond to that real quick. And, and we have this instinctive, I got to fight every single point anywhere yeah. it goes rather than, rather than focusing. It's like, yeah, focus, focus. Let's, let's pay, pay attention to those short things because you already, you already laid out in your opening what he needs to do to win the debate you've already framed the debate so if you keep reframing the audience throughout the debate saying hey remember this is how the debate's framed and reframe him in questions and answers and uh, in in your interactions that that's a that that uh primes the audience for understanding that you've won the debate gotcha. so is there any feedback in the comments of this actual debate about who won um, I think I think everyone was pretty pretty uh, flattering and favorable of of my presentation. Um, there may have been a few here or there. I know there is an avid fan of Anthony Rogers uh, called I think Truth Defenders who was uh, calling me an Eastern Orthodox <laughs> uh, goddess worshiping open theist heretic, um, which is slightly nicer than what David Lewis recently called me a. Uh, uh, what do you call me? An Apollinarian, uh, Pelagian, um, yeah, you know. So, uh, but I think I think most people were were generally favorable. I like that uh, quote from Awesome Lawsome there. That was very very kind. <laughs> yeah, it says, uh, "Dang, Warren with the knockout in the first minute," and he's putting it to uh, he she. He's putting it to the twenty three minute mark. I think that was when my opening started. So I like people who tag time frames in comments because okay, Jordan says, "Ouch, that hurts." I'm gonna oh, what was that? that? Yeah, I'm click, that? clicking it. Um, I've, I've got content on my channel addressing the myth of Pelagianism. Um, it, it's it's a misnomer. Pelagius was one twenty eighth Pelagian. Uh, I think I might even be a little less. Uh, to re to respond further, that 128th Pelagian that Alec Bonner used was based on the uh, the Council oh, of yeah. Jerusalem. This is going somewhere. Days. This is going somewhere. Yeah, you, you want to hear this? If you use the Council of Carthage, you're going to get a different result, which was at uh, 418. Now, Carthage, he was in absentia, though, was he not? That's true. But they yeah, would have, the difference. I'll debate you, and you won't be here, and I'll tell everybody what you believe, and then we'll we'll cite that as reliable. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. The difference, the difference is they defined grace. In, in the Council of Carthage, once they defined grace and said, hey, grace isn't just teaching. Grace isn't just a good example. Grace is the Holy Spirit working inside us. Once they did that, Pelagius was done for. All right, and gentlemen, I, I appreciate back and forth. I think the timestamp time was a little off because actually right before that, this is what I was about to mention with um, the uh, Standing for Truth, not Standing for Truth, Truth Defenders. Uh, I, I, uh, I know he's a big Anthony Rogers fan and, and uh, Dan Dan let slip and called me a, a Pelagian or, or insinuated I was a Pelagian. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and I quoted I quoted where uh, Anthony Rogers or I, I referenced where Anthony Rogers quoted Pelagius as Orthodox because he did not realize he was reading Pelagius. He thought he was reading Jerome, <laughs> and he quoted Pelagius <laughs> as Orthodox. And I was like that bastion of Calvinist orthodoxy and Reformed truth, Anthony Rogers you know, quoted Pelagius as orthodox. So so I think that was the timestamp, but I think that was just a few seconds later. Uh, otherwise, you would have heard that. That was really funny. Remember when I got uh, uh, Matt Slick to affirm uh, Plotinus? 
Uh, you, you, you probably don't know, but uh, it was in the Will Duffy, his first debate with Matt Slick. Yeah, they were sitting around a table with laptops, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and I got up and I asked a question. I was there in person, and I was like, do you affirm this statement? And I read it, and he said, yes. And I said, well, congratulations. You just affirmed Plotinus. Because the whole debate, he was trying to get Will Duffy to affirm, like, Mormon statements. He'd read, like, a Mormon statement and not tell him it's a Mormon statement, and then see if Will Duffy affirms it or not. And so I did the same thing back to him, and boy, he threw a fit. He's like... He's like, oh, yeah, that's that's the hereditary fallacy or something like that. It, oh man, he was he is triggered. Um, not not an intellectually honest individual. Well, I tell you, I will say, there's there, you know, I've had I've had uh, four debates now. I've had debated J.D. Martin, uh, Matt Slick, Tyler Vella, and Dan Chapa. And Dan has been my most delightful debate partner yet. And uh, I really enjoyed the exchange. I thought that he was um, trying to win, but I thought he was doing so, you know, from a from a position of integrity and, and fairness. And I really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I like Dan. It's like when I hear that he's in a debate, I, I wish him well. I hope he wins his, all his debates. He's a nice guy. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem like any of the comments down below talk about changed opinions or who wins. I don't know if this debate's changing minds. I, I think honestly, after the opening that Dan gave, a lot of people, a lot of people likely tuned out because it was it was so deep in the weeds with the slideshows, and it wasn't just on total depravity; it was on prevenient grace and a bunch of other things. Um, but uh, nevertheless, you know, I, I did everything I could in there. Yeah, like if I was going to teach my kids what Calvinists believe, I'll just show them his opening slides and his <laughs> opening teaching. This oh, is you didn't, you didn't, I, I quoted, I quoted Jacobus Arminius saying that men need to be regenerated in order to rightly understand. And uh, Dan responded by going, well, he didn't mean regenerated in the Calvinist sense. He meant it, you know, kind of like a, in an Arminian prevenient grace, you know? And so he was defending pre-faith regeneration and irresistible grace in this debate, which I thought was a, a shocking really. Yeah, so if I want to teach my kids about Calvinism, I'll show them Dan Chapa's opening slides. And uh, I, th I think that that would be a good use for that. But yeah, um, I don't think minds were changed because it's not like uh, people are probably tuning out. You're probably right with, with some of the dry openings. Yeah. But anyways, well, I thank you for coming on tonight and talking this through and hanging out with me for about three hours. Oh, yeah, Grown man. Men thanks can't for... have friends. <laughs> That's right. And I do consider you a friend, Chris. I, I, I value your, your insight and your criticism. And I think uh, you, you really have given me it. Like you'll notice I point to my head a few times in that debate when I talk about thinking. You know, I, I'm listening. You're giving me some good <laughs> advice. I appreciate it. it it's good. It's good. Uh, life is all about learning and improving ourselves, working out, getting strong. That's it. Ha having babies. Yeah. Like, uh, well, <laughs> back in college, my, my buddy got married and I was already married and, and his, my buddy's wife is like, Hey, maybe our kids could date when they get older. I said, if she's attractive, she got, oh, mad. No. She, she got, she got so mad at me. Oh man, dude, that, that is, uh, I, I love that. That needs to be in an episode of the office. I mean, that's, 
<laughs> so, it, my point in short is uh, if your if your young girls are attractive, they could date my boys at some point. <laughs> I love it. That that is that's dark, dry humor. That I love it. Oh, she was so mad. Oh, it's so funny. Alrighty. Well, I'll let you go there. Uh, thanks for coming to everyone. Thanks for listening and uh, chiming in on the side questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread in the God is open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.